many of us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. Superhumans, Boomer Anderson here, and welcome back to another episode of the Decoding Superhuman podcast. I'm so glad you're here with me today because we're going to be talking about quantum biology. Are you familiar with that term? Even if you're not, uh, stick around as we delve into the field of quantum biology and we talk about exactly what that is. Because my guest today is an 18-year-old prodigy named Matt Maruka. He believes that our lives are exactly what we choose to make of them. Matt is a researcher, blogger, and coach of Optimal Human Health. He's also the founder of the blue light blockers that I happen to be wearing right now called Ra Optics. That's R-A Optics. It's a company who creates products and shares information to help people protect themselves from the environmental factors responsible for today's worldwide chronic disease epidemics. Matt has had the pleasure of traveling the world to places like Bosnia and met with some of the leading researchers of quantum biology. Like I said before, he's 18 years old. This conversation is the longest episode of the the Decoding Superhuman podcast to date. It's almost two hours long, but I encourage you to stick it out through the entire thing. The reason being is because we go really, really deep into quantum biology. We also talk about how life really began and how that really connects to a lot of today's disease states that people are going through. Matt talks about why it's important to get some sun every single day and why you may be able to judge the health of a person by their suntan. We talk a little bit about Matt's favorite books. We talk a lot a lot about resources that you can use to get smart on the subject of quantum biology because it is one of my favorite subjects after all. The show notes for this one, the transcript including, can be found at decodingsuperhuman.com backslash maruka. That's M-A-R-U-C-A. Our sponsor for this podcast is actually the guest. It's Matt Maruka's company, Raw Optics. So in my evening regimen, I put on my blue light blockers. They are made by Raw Optics, and you can go online and get some for yourself. They come in a lot of different styles, and they've been tested by the likes of Jack Cruz, which if you're in the field of quantum biology, you know who he is, to really just test their effectiveness. And they're the best blue light blockers I've ever used. You can use the code BOOMER, that's B-O-O-M-E-R, and you'll get 15% off your purchase of these blue light blockers. So all you have to do is go to Raw Optics, that's R-A-O-P-T-I-C-S dot I-O, and use the code BOOMER, and you got yourself 15% off. I really hope you enjoy the episode, and I look forward to hearing your feedback on this one, superhumans. Have an epic day, and enjoy the episode. Hey there, superhumans. Boomer Anderson here, back with another episode. And my guest today has single-handedly been one of the largest contributors to improvements in my sleep recently. He is the creator of possibly, actually, I'm going to go ahead and say it, the best blue light blockers on the planet. His company is called Raw Optics. I'll do the full introduction, obviously, separately. But we're here today with Matt Maruka from Raw Optics. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Boomer. How's it going? Oh, man, I'm living the dream. And, you know, we we share sort of similar geography or geographic ways of uh, growing up or places of growing up, I should say. So, you know, it's good to meet somebody who's from the Pennsylvania area. Yeah, yeah. 
haven't met too many people in the health crowds from this area. It's pretty interesting. Haven't even been able to get a meetup around here. <laughs> I imagine between Philly cheesesteaks and a few other things that people may not be on the realm of quantum biology yet. Yeah, yeah. So Matt, I want to kick things off by talking about, you know, just your story. Because I came across you through Jack Cruz. And I want to hear a little bit about how you found Jack Cruz and sort of what your health story was like, because it seems very interesting to me. Yeah, well, you know, there's many ways to skin the cat with this one, but the simplest way to do it is to tell you that when I was growing up, I didn't feel well. And there's a lot of different ways to interpret that. But uh, as a young kid, I always had some severe gut issues, some severe allergies, the kind of things that I say it and I don't even really connect back to the way that I used to feel. But if I were back in those moments, it was really suffering. Just on days and days of nice, beautiful weather, I would just be miserable with allergies. Um, you know, almost any time I would eat, by the time I got to my freshman year of high school, which is kind of when I, ha I had had enough, I uh, would be getting horrible gas and bloating every time I would eat something. Um, and then, you know, I had migraine headaches, just headaches almost every day throughout middle school. So again, I go back to these and I don't, I don't really even feel the emotion and that connection anymore. It's almost like I've numbed myself from, from what I felt, but it was pretty miserable. And, and even on days now when I feel slightly less than optimal, I'm just like such, you know, a wreck. I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, how did I live like this for so long? That was not fun. And then basically after a few more months of just trudging through when I got to my freshman year of high school, I decided I'm going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to do some research of my own because I had already gone to standard medical doctors like uh, gastroenterologists who told me to just take Tums for my stomach issues every day. They said, <laughs> and then I went to, you know, uh, like a regular doctor, a pediatrician who said just to take Advil for my headaches, just take Advil every day, you'll be fine. And then it was just so funny for my, the allergist said, take Zyrtec every day. And they gave me these big horse fill. It's like, it's insane. And I just had my best friends over who just got home, one from sailing through the Caribbean for two months and one from teaching English in Nepal, hiking around Mount Everest. He was doing yoga certification and a 10 day silent retreat. And our third best friend's on his silent retreat right now in uh, Nepal. Like we've all been going down our own paths, living the life. Um, and since, cause we all just graduated high school last May. So we were talking at breakfast about how 50, like 50% 50 of people in our society are taking antidepressants. It's, it's, if people don't realize how much we're already living in an Orwellian 1984 society, when like 50% of the population is taking antidepressants and like no one's even talking about that. And then there's a school shooting in Parkland, Florida and all these other school shootings. And rather than saying like, you know, even asking like, why does someone feel the need or is so mentally diseased that they need to, they go and shoot up a school of children, their, their classmates versus, you know, everyone just the, the politics in the state. And this is really related to the podcast before the show. I told you I was just on two days ago on Easter recording, really cool podcast about education and uh, schooling called school sucks. I was recording this episode with this guy and he was helping me realize that what the government and the state is doing, whether you're a conservative or a Republican, you're still a statist because you're a, a fan of a big government and you think that the government's actually doing good things. You know, statist type people, um, especially in, in the United States, they're, you know, harness, or at least the liberal side of things right now is harnessing the power of the youth to get more and more government. You know, like this thing happens and rather than question what, what's wrong in our society, 
they're, they're saying, oh, we need to take guns away from everyone because guns must be the problem, right? Like, I mean, to me, it's just a, a, a huge framing error in what's actually going on in the debate. But anyway, so I decided to take things into my own hands when these things weren't working. And I had even gone to a kinesiologist, a little alternative type stuff. You know, my aunt uh, had been running her own health food store for a while. So she was a bit alternative. One of my dad's girlfriends, because my parents were divorced, she was um, basically a total alternative thinker. Her, her sons were both doing uh, gluten-free, dairy-free diets. So she said, you know, maybe you should try that. And I was open to it. Uh, plus, half my, my mom's side of the family has celiac disease. So I, I thought there's a, you know, an issue there. Anyway, though, uh, I got into the diet world. I started the paleo diet because I had been a vegetarian for a long time and it wasn't working for me. And that was part of the reason why I was, I think, really skinny. In addition to the three health issues I mentioned, the gut issues, the daily allergies that were just debilitating and miserable. Anyone who's gone through that knows what I'm talking about. The headaches, terrible. And gut issues, I think most people don't have horrible chronic gas and bloating, but I did at such a young age. And by the time I was a freshman, it was like, that's it. I mean, yeah, I was at an all guys prep school. So, you know, that was like just... It was just a really weird situation to be in with, with the issues I felt like I was having. Um, and I was pretty miserable. So, yeah, I started the paleo diet, right? Because it's, mm -hmm. it's the thing to find how to heal your gut, you know, because I assume my gut's just totally destroyed. And um, I, I went through that, and I felt so much better, like, within a week. I cut out all this crap food, and I was like, wow, I feel great. This is the solution. This is going to do everything for me. I'm going to be better than I ever was before. I'm going to be happy. I'm not going to let this stuff drag me down anymore. But then a few, a few weeks went by, and a few months went by, and although my allergies, headaches, and gut issues had kind of gone, gotten away, it transformed to this horrible fatigue, this horrible, um, like, these gut like GERD symptoms in my throat, mm -hmm. like uh, esophageal reflux disorder, you know, this, this weird taste in my mouth all the time that led me to think that I had like really bad breath all the time, which was like a huge social issue for me when I was a sophomore. I don't, I've, the only time I ever mentioned this was on this last podcast I did. Like that was just, that was miserable. Really. It was terrible. Yeah. Was lots of peer pressure. Right. <laughs> and kind yeah, of, was, you know, so were you going through just like brain fog or was it just general, almost chronic fatigue-like syndrome. Chronic fatigue syndromes, for sure. Yeah. One, and this is the thing is I was on the paleo diet, which is espoused to be like the top diet in the world. And thankfully, the, the gut issues, headaches, and allergies had gone away. Um, I started getting a little less skinny, you know, putting on a little bit more meat and weight because uh, I was the skinniest and palest of all my friends. I always burnt in the sun when I was younger. I was the guy who just would burn anyone who knows, you know, what I'm talking about, who, who is that person. They say, oh, I can't get sun. I burn. That's bullshit. You can get sun if you change the environment so your skin works the way it's supposed to. Because mm -hmm. I'm super tan now. I'm tanner than my, my friend who always was way tanner than me. Um, and he's been in the Caribbean for three months on a sailboat. I haven't been south of Berkeley, California since January 19th. Like, I mean, because that's the furthest south I've been. And I'm still having a better tan than he, he does. So anyway, tans, side note, you know, tans correlate to health. Mm -hmm. There's uh, all researchers from heliotherapy times. Uh, as you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, they knew that the deeper the tan, the better the cure. So if you tan well, that's a sign of health. If you don't, it's an issue. If you're Irish and you have the whitest skin ever, there's, you know, you might not tan a lot, but I'm Irish too. And I have, I had the whitest skin ever and I'm still tanning. So, so anyway, so am I, so am I. <laughs> so yeah, the paleo diet had my hopes up, but mm -hmm. then it horribly under delivered, like just miserably under delivered after a few months. And I was looking to Chris Kresser, Rob Wolf, Mark Sisson, Dave Asprey, all these guys to, you know, help me basically through their, their articles or podcasts. 
and it just wasn't working. And then I went on to the autoimmune protocol of the paleo diet mm-hmm. where I cut out all the, all the nightshade, vegetables, eggs, anything that could trigger my immune system because I was convinced it was about the gut, mm-hmm. right? I thought it was all about food. So Matt, did you go like full on walls protocol or were you just uh, the autoimmune, autoimmune paleo? I was not doing the walls protocol, but I got to the gaps diet. Yeah. You know, the Clinton psychology syndrome diet. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with? Oh, vaguely. Yeah. Basically, I mean, more walls than walls yourself. It was like only bone broths, cooked meat and cooked vegetables wow. and only a certain time. It was not, dude, I was starving myself because now I know um, from the stuff I've learned since then that my mitochondria, the engines in my cells were trashed. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't earn that fat that I was trying to, you know, be on a ketotic fat-based diet. I needed sugar. My body was completely disconnected. I I mean, physically, like I was addicted physically to sugar. My mitochondria were dependent on sugar, Mm -hmm. kind of like cancer cells, like the precancerous Warburg metabolism um, that you, you mentioned, Dr. Cruz, that he's talked about, and Dr. Otto Warburg from a long time ago, 1900s, talked about this uh, Warburg metabolism, which is where the, uh, the cells appear to only be able to really utilize glucose very efficiently and effectively. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't know all the deep details at the moment. I'm constantly learning more and more. But basically, their metabolisms have gotten so reverted to a, pro- a, a basic state where they can't do the higher level functions of fat burning. Mm-hmm. So I was, and I ended up with an eating disorder that summer because it was my freshman year of high school. And around the winter time, I found paleo. That summer, by then, I was just in a total miserable eating disorder where I would try these strict diets. Like it was just week to week, I'd have this plan written out on my notepad that was like my Bible of what I was following because it was all I could think about. Like every day, all I could think about was not breaking the diet, not making any mistakes, no cheats. Because they, they claim, because they're so focused on food, like literally looking through a straw to view the world, that that if you make one little error, one of these, you know, one food that's not allowed on the autoimmune protocol, it's going to re-trigger the immune system and have all these issues. It's such a, it's such a, it sounds like it makes sense when you're ignorant or when you just don't know better, but it's such an oversimplified view. Like no one was ever asking or posing the question even because they no, no one even posed the question in the first place. Well, why is the immune system so f***ed up that you can't eat a normal food? Mm-hmm. What is causing that, you know? And, and so that I actually caused myself to have allergies to foods that I wasn't allergic to before, like chocolate, you know, and it's, it's mm-hmm. insane because of the way I was avoiding all this stuff. Anyway, so continued on. And um, basically, it got worse and worse. I was I get to a point where I was like, literally going to the, the store, you know, Wawa, right? The, the convenience. Oh, <laughs> Wawa. I grew up on Wawa, man. I would literally buy like, tubs of ice cream like pints of ice cream and just mm-hmm. go through like two or three in a sitting so you fell off a cliff almost after well and it would repeat like weekly it was like just complete binge eating disorder mm-hmm. it was and so i wasn't healing at all but i couldn't maintain those diets that you know, i tried so hard and then i beat myself up because i thought i didn't have any willpower anyone listening to this who think willpower has anything to do with this stuff is missing something it's not about willpower like i mean yeah there's there's factors where willpower and true desire to succeed will work like i know that i have willpower because and the desire to succeed because i kept pushing through but as far as like what your body is craving the food you're 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 craving willpower isn't the main factor in in sticking to the diet i learned that has a lot more to do with your environment your mitochondrial function the, the signals you're giving yourself so basically around that following year so that was the summer when i had that real issue the following year was when I had these morphed issues, like with, you know, I had stopped the binging stuff and I was still on like a strict autoimmune protocol diet, which wasn't healing me. I felt like crap. You know, I was tired every day, really tired. You know, I didn't know anything about light. I had nothing, I knew nothing about light, nothing about sleep at the time. So this is my sophomore year of high school. I learned about uh, Dr. Cruz 
Um, and before that though, I had, well, around that same time, I, I decided I'm going to go to a functional medicine doctor because I was so desperate. My dad's like, son, you know, find a doctor that you will go to that you think will be able to help you and I'll pay for it, whatever we'll get it done. And she tested me and, you know, I had like super oversimplified gut bacteria, no surprise, but she was not asking like, why was that happening? You know, it was just, it was just assumed it was diet, blah, blah, blah. So she gave me antibiotics and then like just uh, some herbs and stuff that she claimed would like heal me. And I took all that stuff and, you know, like my dad, for example, because he spent the money on it, he likes to believe that that was the thing that cured me. But I know that I didn't feel better after that. Mm -hmm. So and I wasn't much better. But then I started doing these cruise protocols because I was fascinated. I learned about Dr. Jack Cruz because of uh, some of the paleo hacks threads and people talking about CT and Dave Asprey talking about this stuff. And I was like, this is interesting. And, and then I heard him talk and I liked it a lot because anytime a, a guy or a, a girl or whatever claims to know something that other people don't know, I was thinking to myself, like, I am so interested, you know, because even if they're wrong, I like it when someone claims, you know, they think they're ahead of the curve and they, they, they so confident that they know they're ahead of the curve. And, uh, it, you know, it felt that way with the paleo people at first, but then I learned, well, that's not working. But he was specifically saying, if the paleo diet isn't working for you, here's why, because they're focused on the gas uh, the car, but they're not focused on the engine itself. So basically, I would tell people this analogy to try to understand biology and, and my experience and use the analogy of a car. So basically, um, our body's like a car where we have in the car an engine and a gas tank and the gas going in. Mm -hmm. Our body's like that too. We have the gas going in, which is like the food that we eat. And then we have the engines in ourselves that receive the food, aka the gas, and then utilize it for some kind of result. So it isn't just a simple system where you are what you eat. That's not true. That's completely not true. You are not what you eat. You are what you absorb uh, minus what and what you retain minus what you emit in, in one sense. You know, you would never say, you know, the car is is what the gas that you put in it. You know, the car isn't the gas that you put in it. The car is much more than that. And it, its function relies more on the engine, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, let's say you took that car, right? You open the hood, you pour in some syrup, you smash it with a sledgehammer, the engine specifically, uh, and then you unscrew everything. And then you put in premium gas and you try to drive down the street and either your car doesn't start or it starts, but you can't go above two miles per hour. And then you start saying to yourself, well, I'm putting in premium gas. Why isn't my car working? And well, the answer is that your engine's destroyed and you're not looking at the engine. And so that's the simplest way to explain what the paleo diet and all these food focused communities and everything are missing. They're focused on the gas, but they don't understand that there's an engine and that the gas isn't the thing that controls how the engine works, right? Mm -hmm. The engine works based on a lot of other things. The mitochondria are electromagnetic organelles, these little bits of mini you know, energy producers inside of ourselves. And so they're electromagnetic, they're controlled by electromagnetic frequencies like light, magnetism, magnetic fields, you know, things like radio frequencies and EMFs, which you've probably talked about on your show, yep. they also have an impact. And this is kind of one of the ways that those things affect us in addition to many other researched issues. So I, I learned about that analogy and I was pretty sold. You know, I started living the uh, more quantum health lifestyle as opposed to paleo or vegan or whatever. Mm -hmm. Another way to say quantum health, which is like a, you know, a sciencey sounding term is just reconnecting to nature, you know, having a functional circadian rhythm, uh, trying to wake up for the sunrise or, or going out and getting sunlight when you wake up in the morning. 
So all of these things are what I, w- I was doing. And in a recent podcast on HealthCast Now with Kevin Cottrell, I basically distilled down, because he asked for it, the simplest things that I, I did to, to improve myself. I was just going to ask you this. Like, what, what did you actually start doing that or first, you know, I guess rank them in terms of what had the most impact? Yeah. So it's interesting that I, um, I actually did all of these things at the same time. So it's hard for me to say exactly what had the most impact, but I could feel certain things that had the biggest impact. So for mm-hmm. example, what I did was I knew that the environment I was in during that sophomore year of high school was toxic, but I didn't even realize that the EMFs and the fake light were the big issue until after I had already left. But I just knew in my intuition from the education side of things, the social side of things, and the health side of things that I needed to go somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. So I signed up for a government foreign exchange program to you know, some country. I didn't know what it would be, but then they assigned me to Eastern Europe when I got accepted out of like a couple thousand kids, I was like one of 60 something that got in. I was super happy about it. So I went to, to Bosnia and Herzegovina and Eastern Europe for a full 10 months, which is so much less EMF, um, you know, so much more natural food. People walk everywhere. They live outdoors. Where in Bosnia were you? I was in a city called Banja in the north. Okay. So, I've been to Mostar. I don't know Banja but that's okay, awesome. Yeah. It's magnificent. It's two hours south of uh, south east of Zagreb. Mm-hmm. It's about a six hour drive or maybe actually no more like a three to four hour drive uh, west of Belgrade, Serbia, inland from Croatia, all these things. But anyway, it was amazing. Like I had such a blast. I I really loved it. And that was the biggest thing I did was changing my environment to a healthier environment. Like from, for example, from what I learned from Dr. Cruz, he would often say in order to get well, you really have to change your environment. And for some people, they could still live in the same house and change the things they're doing every day, like the amount of time they spend outdoors versus indoors, the amount of EMF they're exposing themselves to from their house, the quality of the water they're drinking, uh, you know, whether they're exposing themselves to the cold and the temperature changes or not. Like these things can all be done by people that change their environment within the same house or physical place. But for a lot of people, given like the cell tower situation, 5G radiation and things like this, the amount of sunlight in a certain area, the social environment, the friends you have around, all these things, pollution, the food supply, all these things also have an impact. You might not be able to get by by staying in the same place. You might have to completely relocate. So I kind of did that and I actually got such a tremendous benefit that um, I came back and I was completely changed. So what did I do while I was there to answer your question? Well, the biggest things I did were trying to fix my circadian rhythm to start. So number one was basically getting up in the morning and getting the sun, whether I was waking up really early for school and getting it like a sunrise or waking up a little later because my circadian rhythm, rhythm still wasn't optimal. So I wasn't waking up naturally at first light like we're designed to, like the birds. Um, but I would still go out and get the sun first thing for as long as possible in the morning anyway, which I think is really good practice. But if you could get up for the sunrise, even I think if you have to use an alarm in the beginning to try to get your clock set back to where it needs to be, that would be very, very ideal for people to get that that initial rise in the light, you know, trying to get their rhythm lined up. That was one. And then the second huge thing was getting a huge amount of sunlight during the day just and i'm doing these in order of importance kind of but also in the order that they would happen throughout the day so just in addition to getting that morning first like wake up call spending a lot of time just outdoors as opposed to being indoors because you can't just get your morning sunlight for five minutes and say oh i'm living a natural connected lifestyle all the time all of a sudden like you really you need to be actually living more outdoors if you want to really have the benefits and if you're healthy you probably get by with not a ton 
extra sunlight, but it doesn't mean you're going to be optimal. So what is, what does not a ton mean, Matt? Like, let's just put some numbers to this. How often, how long were you spending outside first thing in the morning? And then how long throughout the day? All of the, all of the light hours of the day I was spending outside, except, you know, the hour that I was, well, yeah, like, you know, 30 minutes, I'd be getting ready in the morning to do something after I had gotten a little bit of sunlight out my window. Mm -hmm. Um, then I, 30 minutes and do my things. I'd go outside and walk to school or bike to school. And then however much time I had in school, I would be in there. So who knows, you know, two, three, four hours. I didn't have too much school there. And then the rest of that, I try to spend, try to spend outside doing whatever I could, like walk, doing my homework outside. On the days where it was too cold, then I wouldn't, you know, I'd be inside the majority of the day and I would just try to get even just two to three hours. So when I was in Germany, uh, while I was traveling around Europe in from like September to December of la- of 2017, I met with Dr. Alexander Wunsch of Germany. And he mm-hmm. told me that he has become come to believe that humans need absolutely at the minimum two hours of unfiltered sun exposure every single day. And I think he was referring to getting it on the eyes and the, in the face at least, because obviously mm-hmm. even he isn't going to go run around, take his shirt off in the streets of Heidelberg. But, um, yeah, so that's huge. So two hours minimum. Um, and that's kind of what I was doing, you know, between walking around, going to and from school, hanging out with someone outside, sitting by the river and thinking or reading. I got at least two hours every day. And I say that's a minimum for someone who's healthy and wants to just stay healthy. But even then, it, it's hard to say because we're really designed to be outside all of the sunlight hours of the day. So, you know, really, I would say as much as possible is the okay. best answer. Cool. So if you have an indoor job, um, you know, your job forces you to be indoors and the most you can get is a few minute sun breaks throughout the day, then that's the best you can do unless you're willing to prioritize your health over your job. And it's some, for some people it's difficult because in order to live the lifestyle they want to live with the things that they're used to and the conveniences that they're used to, they want to keep making the same amount of money that they've made. So the way they see it, it is important to their health for them to keep their job in order to be able to have the conveniences that they've always been used to. But yeah, that's just the decision people need to make for themselves, especially if they're older, aging, diseased. If you want to get your health back, trying being in the same environment is not going to, is not going to do it just mm-hmm. from what I learned. So, so yeah, I, I, I did that. So the morning sun and then getting just a lot of outdoor time throughout the day and sun exposure. And, and that included, you know, taking my shirt off. Like I was always a dude who had his shirt off. I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> walk around the city with my shirt off because the cops there were kind of crazy. Like one time I had my shirt off and the cop like came up to me and was like, you can't do that. Yeah. I can imagine Bosnia is not the, not the most accepting of those things. Yeah, no, absolutely not. But, um, you know, in the U S you could walk around with your shirt off down the street in the winter. It doesn't matter. You can do what you want. But there it was like, no, you can't do that. This is weird. Um, and anyway, then the third thing that was really, really important that I critical is drinking good quality water. Like Mm -hmm. I I just believe, I mean, I couldn't like, it's hard for me to say I felt a difference because like I felt a difference from all these things I was doing, but just like from the research and intuitively now drinking like fluoridated, chlorinated tap water with all these other chemicals in it. You can listen to a podcast episode uh, done by Luke story um, on his podcast, the lifestylist podcast about water with this expert, the things that are in municipal water are disgusting. Like even if it's trace amounts, like even things like condom lubricants and stuff like this can be found in municipal water because they don't like filter stuff very effectively or very well. I mean, mm-hmm. who knows how accurate that is? You'd have to listen to the episode yourself, and judge by, by yourself. But that's at least in certain places in the U.S. In addition to the fact that, you know, there's lead in some people's water supply, like in Flint, Michigan. But anyway, that was huge. Good water. To elaborate on what I mean by that, basically, 
not drinking tap water that most people are drinking, unless you happen to live in like a village in Bosnia where I, I was sometimes with people. And I met a dude, like a family friend of my host families who worked in the water company or whatever. And they literally did nothing to the water. They didn't even treat it. They let it flow from the spring in the mountains and distribute it throughout the town. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Like, so if you got water like that from a really good source, and that's great. You know, testing your water would be great for like, for example, the deuterium content and other stuff. And I know a lab at UCLA will do that. I don't exactly know the details. You'd have to research that yourself, but testing is great to, to know for sure. But um, definitely just the best thing to be safe is, is, you know, you could go to Whole Foods and buy good quality spring water as opposed to drinking tap water, or you could get a spring water delivery service. Like here I used to have, I don't live in my house now full time anymore. Um, I'm just here temporarily, but basically having spring water basically being delivered to your house, five gallon jugs cost like $7 and that's really good quality. So that's something that anyone can do to optimize their health and improve it. Okay. So you don't do things like reverse osmosis with your water. You just buy the spring water directly, right? I mean, yeah, if I was trapped in a city and I didn't have any way to get spring water, I'd consider reverse osmosis. But at this point, like I'm not concerned with trying to just make it work as it is mm-hmm. i'm trying to actually get to the optimal solution and try to be my best live my best feel my best so i don't settle for anything less than the best that's out there awesome so that was the third thing the fourth thing is blocking blue light at night because this goes back to fixing the circadian rhythm so as soon as night comes around in this one you can feel the effects of like if you're on your computer late at night you don't have flux on your computer like almost immediately, as soon as I learned about it, it just made so much sense that I did it. But now, like I, I mean, I couldn't even conceive of looking at a cell phone or a computer screen without a blue light filter on it. Like to me, I'm in such a different world. I think from a lot of people, I'm just living my own life, doing things the way I do. But when I'm around other people and I see them on their phone with that no filtering, no night shift, no color filters, red screen. Like, and, uh, I just look at, I'm like, Oh my God, like people still do that to themselves, <laughs> but it's, it's actually just, it's so, so, so surprising to me that that's how it is. But Hey, I mean, you know, it's, it's not like anyone who's doing that is stupid or that they're, that they're wrong or that, you know, it's just simply, I didn't know for a long time. And then I learned that that was not good and that there's research about that. And that's one thing that it, it kind of makes me uneasy because on one hand, like, I feel like, you know, I'm doing things a way that's working for me, but then, you know, and I believe it's pretty important stuff. Like the research is pretty clear, especially as far as blue light at night affecting sleep, melatonin and health goes. But the fact that, that it's just still in the dark, you know, the things that social, social media and, you know, media in general, CNN, whatever things that they're talking about versus like the things that are actually the people are doing on a daily basis and impacting their lives is like diametrically opposite you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like people are all concerned about all this shit that's this theoretical less tangible political stuff like you know the average person's you know in the u.s is well a lot of people are super pissed off that trump's the president and you know they think everything's going to shit because of trump and like they they're you know deriving their image and the way they're they feel i think based on, you know, who's the president and the image of the country. And they feel like that's their life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They don't have a, a self-awareness maybe or self-esteem or a, a anything in their life that they stand on for a foundation. It's just all about what the government and politics are doing. And, and then a lot of these people tend to be like not the nicest or most moral people in their life, but they, you know, are trying to like say that, oh, that these things that 
aren't related to me at all are so important and so, you know, but it's just a weird disconnect that I notice between the way that people live their lives and then the things that they espouse or, or go mm-hmm. for. But so yeah, as far as blue light affecting sleep at night, like what am I going to say? I mean, blue light for me has been probably, I mean, the largest game changer. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, because when I started going down the same route that you did, albeit at a much older age, it was just amazing to me getting up with the sunlight, those kind of things, and what the effects were on my overall physiology. But blue light in general, now I sit there with, I, I use Iris instead of Flux, but I have it on my phone. I have it on all my computers. And, you know, I put on your raw optics blue light blockers at night. And when I look at other people, including my girlfriend who I live with, who look at electronics way into the evening, it's it's just amazing to me that people still do it. Getting the message or anything? It's, she's uh, it's kind of like the um, the shoe my shoemaker's wife has no shoes kind of situation, uh, yeah. but she's she's adapting, so she's she's coming along a little bit slower than than I would like, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is what it is. Same thing with families and friends and whatnot. But you know, my friends, most of them changed when they realized the message. But anyway, like yeah, I mean at this point. I could point people in like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Like anyone listening <laughs> who hasn't heard of, of how blue light affects sleep, you know, go to Harvard's website and read about it. Read some papers, go to, you know, just write blue light and sleep. Learn about, read about something called melanopsin, a photoreceptor in our eyes that basically controls our sleep wake cycle based on its sensitivity is in the blue light range. It's only sensitive to blue light. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a new photoreceptor that was discovered well in the, in the 90s or early 2000s. I think it was the 90s, maybe even more recently. But anyway, that, that basically only picks up, unlike the rods and cones that pick up the visible spectrum, it only picks up the blue frequencies, but we don't actually get that converted into a, a camera image in our head. It's like a clock searching for that blue. And the reason why, there's a really simple video on YouTube that uh, I will send you, Boomer, that you can share that explains Absolutely. why our brain sensitive to blue light but basically because it's as far as i understand it it's the frequency that's most refracted by air and so that's why the sky appears blue unless it's like a white gray cloudy day like where i am right now but the sky appears blue when the sun is shining because of this the way that blue light bends and interacts and refracts and everything and so it just happens to be the frequency i guess the most present or the most of all the energetic frequencies it's the one that is most present mm-hmm. in day so that it was the obvious choice for life to use to know is it daytime or is it nighttime that's uh, that's why the brain uses it so if you have blue light at night you're basically telling your brain it's night or it's daytime at night and most people because they don't understand the, the deeper science behind it like i've come to learn about it wouldn't seem like such an issue but once you kind of do then you realize actually it's a really big issue but the simplest way i can put it out to people is your body is designed to be in a awake mode part of the day when the light is out and then it's designed to be getting into a regenerative and repair mode when it's dark out but for most people's brains it's never dark out anymore until they turn off their phone the last time before bed and so the brain hasn't been prepared for proper sleep and regeneration so your sleep quality like i'll just say it you know outright like if someone is looking at a blue lit screen before bed then their sleep quality is going to be lower than it otherwise would be. Like if you are using a phone before bed without any filters or any blue light blocking glasses, your melatonin level is going to be lower than it would otherwise be. And some people are like, oh, I don't even care really. 
um, cause I still sleep fine. So if you sleep well, then that, that is a good sign. But if you are feeling any less well than you possibly could, like if you have uh, allergies, if you have headaches, if you have gut issues, if you have any issues like that, that would be something to consider because people just have these issues like I did. And then they think like, Oh, it's totally unrelated. There's, you know, it's just genetic or something. It's not genetic. Like if you have health issues, if you don't have the energy you have, it is because of your environment and the things you're doing on a daily basis. And it probably has a lot to do with light because there's a guy, um, well, because of the science, but there's a guy, for example, at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and mm-hmm. kind of like our hometown named Dr. Doug Wallace, who I learned about through Dr. Cruz. He's really, Dr. Cruz has really pointed me in a lot of really cool directions. And I met with a few of these researchers. I mentioned like Dr. Wunsch in Germany, the leading researcher on the health effects of sunlight. And then Dr. Wallace, who's the leading researcher in the world in mitochondrial health and mitochondrial diseases. And he basically, for anyone who isn't familiar with Dr. Wallace, he really would love probably to just read about him a little bit because it's very important. If you, if you think you're interested in health and disease and whatnot, but you don't know about Dr. Wallace, it'd be a great time to do so right now. Basically, he and his team, he's been studying mitochondria. They founded the field of mitochondrial genetics about 50 years ago. And they studied the migration patterns of mitochondrial haplotypes because they learned that, that mitochondria are descended only, or given only through mothers. So for people who don't know, your mitochondria are only passed down by your mom. And what this basically means for anyone listening, when a man and a woman have a child, you can think of the genes, um, use the analogy of a house. You can think of the genetic blueprint like a blueprint to building a house. And then you can think of the mitochondria as the workers, the plumbers, the contractors, the electricians, the drywallers. Like my dad is a, a contractor, so I've seen all these things on certain job sites. Like literally, the, they, you know, everything. That's what the mitochondria do. They provide the energy for everything. If you don't have them, yeah, you need both. But the mitochondria are the ones that actually make things happen. And if, like for example, the blueprint is the blueprint. You know, there's, there's a genetic blueprint. Okay, certain genes can turn on and off, but you have what you have. And genes can be changed within a lifetime. Like this is what some science is showing, the science of epigenetics, guys like Bruce Lipton, all this stuff. But Dr. Wallace is outlining how epigenetics works because it isn't just like one thing in your environment happens and all of a sudden, oh, epigenetics, your genes turn on and off. Like mm-hmm. that isn't, it isn't how it works. There's a, the mitochondrial is the key link between the way that the environment impacts us, which is the mitochondria, because there's a thousand of them in each of our hundred trillion human cells. Again, in every single cell, uh, which of which there are a hundred trillion human cells in the body, there's approximately a thousand mitochondria. And I won't get into the story right now of how this occurred and how complex life evolved. If you want to go to my YouTube channel and learn about how life went from um, single-celled life to life that bacterial cells that merge together and mitochondria joined together and basically allowed for much more complexity. I mean, the simplest way to to explain it for anyone who's on a higher level as far as science goes is that we had all these distinct bacteria, you know, different bacteria that lived all throughout the the oceans and everything. And basically what they would do is they would share genes through something called lateral gene transfer. Mm -hmm. And over time, the theory, and no one knows exactly for sure how these merge, not even guys like Dr. Wallace, but the best, the leading theory uh, with the most evidence is that the gene transfer was happening and they found a very good uh, compatibility between two certain bacteria such that they eventually, one actually was engulfed by the other entirely. And basically what occurred is the bacteria that was engulfed because it no longer had to carry out a lot of like executive functions. It no longer had to move. It no longer had to get the nutrients. It no longer had to do a lot of things. 
that mitochondria, what became a mitochondria now, um, and the other cell is what I would call the host cell, which we have now 100 trillion host cells, each of which have, have approximately, like I said, 1,000 mitochondria, that those mitochondria were able to have genes deleted. So basically, uh, because they didn't need to do this, those things I was saying, all of these functions in life require genes. So for example, you want to you wanna make proteins, that's going to require certain genes, obviously, but proteins for movement, proteins for obtaining nutrients, proteins for other things. The mitochondria didn't need that. All they needed were the genes for the proteins that cr create energy because the host cell would take care of everything else now. Now, the reason why life never got more complex than a bacterial cell, which is about one fifteen thousandth the size of our human cells, is because there was an energy constraint because uh, life could only, you know, it's energy, the amount of energy a cell can produce, long story short, and I'll, I'll, I'll share the books by the end of this podcast that people can read to understand this stuff. The first one is by another, third, the third world leading researcher I met in England called Nick Lane, wrote a book called The Vital Question, which was reviewed by Bill Gates as like his favorite biology book. Basically, Nick Lane found that life began at the, the bottom of the ocean, these alkaline hydrothermal vents, and uh, basically, life was using surfaces to create energy. So, you know, now that we're down the rabbit hole, do you, do you want me to just go down the rabbit hole? <laughs> Keep going, man. I love this stuff. So, Great. So, so basically, you know, for people who aren't too sciencey, you may want to skip over this. And, and find <laughs> but for people who like science, you probably will like this. So anyone who knows about physics and chemistry and biology will like this or any of the three. So basically, in these alkaline hydrothermal vents, you have ocean water, which has a certain acidity or a certain pH, a certain amount of protons, basically. That's what it's called. And ocean water is generally neutral or slightly acidic. Whereas you have these alkaline fluids coming from inside the earth in these alkaline hydrothermal vents. And so what that causes is something called a proton gradient. Okay. So there's more protons on one side of these tiny little uh, mineral pore walls inside these vents. There's billions of little pores with these little thin mineral walls, basically, right? And on one side, there's ocean water, which has way more protons. And then there's alkaline water or fluids that have way fewer protons. And that's what's called a proton gradient. A gradient is if you have 100 people in one room and one person in the other room, the, 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 one is, the, the room with 100 people is tiny, it's packed, people are going to naturally flow out of that room. And that's what a gradient is. There's more in one place and less in the other. And things naturally want to flow down the gradient so that things are equilibriated, so at equal concentrations, right? So these protons, there's energy there. There's potential energy there when things want to move, but they can't because there's a door between those two rooms. So basically what happened was this door or these thin or, or mineral walls basically um, – had electron, you know, uh, molecules that could allow electrons to semiconduct, and basically the energy that was was present in that gradient, that energy that was flowing basically across that wall, basically provided what we would consider free energy, even though it wasn't actually free. It was there in the form of the proton gradient to catalyze the reaction between certain molecules that had an energy barrier to their reaction, right? So in the universe, like hydrogen and oxygen, under certain conditions, they'll react to form water. Certain conditions, they won't, but certain conditions, they will, right? So basically, same thing in these vents. There was a lot of carbon dioxide and a lot of hydrogen that would not react because there was an energy barrier. Even though if it were to react, it would actually be stable, but it required a little bit of a different environment, aka a little bit more of an energy input, to finally come together and react, right? So basically, this energy in that proton gradient started to catalyze these reactions between these two molecules. And over time, there were these, um, just by natural structuring to, for the molecules to be more satisfied, just for anyone who doesn't know about science but is interested in this, 
or people who do know about science, you know, I might be slightly wrong on certain things, but just, you know, you could correct this in the comment sections or whatever. Mm -hmm. Basically life or in the universe, there's something called the law of entropy, which is uh, the second law of thermodynamics, I think, or what's one of the laws of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. And it means that you could probably figure that out. It's, it's forget which number it is, but it's a law that basically means that everything in the universe is ultimately flowing towards a state of entropy. And another term for entropy is chaos. So everything in the universe is flowing towards a state of chaos. Even though you see a tree, you see earth and it's structured and the molecules are together. The theory is that everything is ultimately going to flow towards a state of chaos where all molecules and energy are equally distributed throughout the universe or, or something like this. This is, this is generally the theory of entropy things. For example, if you fart in a room, the gas naturally fills that space. That's like basically the law of entropy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that's a great analogy, by the way. Exactly, but it works. And so, so I always thought that, for example, things like life, because Erwin Schrodinger wrote this book, and Nick Lane was talking in his book about her, how Erwin Schrodinger was slightly incorrect about certain things. His book, What is Life?, by Erwin Schrodinger in the 1940s or 50s, who's a famous physicist, basically was saying, okay, we know all this stuff about physics. We don't, we don't know jack squat about life. But he basically theorized that life is, is a, a reaction or a structure that basically takes free energy from the environment. And again, no energy is free. It comes from somewhere. But free energy to create structure and defy entropy, or, or it's a state of what he calls negative entropy. And so, again, this is, this is physics type stuff. That's what Erwin Schrodinger thought. But then Nick Lane, this biochemist from the University College of London, who I went and met, basically uh, did these calculations along with a lot of other researchers. And they basically found that when you have a protein like a, or a string of amino acids called, called a polypeptide chain, mm -hmm. according to kind of what Erwin Schrodinger was basically saying, the theory is that that polypeptide chain is actually, it is defying entropy in a way. Like it's not exactly supposed to happen, but it does happen based on the energy that's present. That was kind of what Schrodinger said. What Nick Lane and his team was saying is Schrodinger's sort of right, but really what's actually happening is that when these polypeptides or these amino acids bond to form that polypeptide chain, which eventually will become a protein if there's enough of them, those chains together, those molecules bond through something called a dehydration reaction that forms, mm -hmm. uh, you know, takes up a water molecule, rele it releases energy, that's the key. And so what, what happens when energy is released, that's increasing the entropy in the universe. And that's actually saying basically that this protein molecule is actually more desirable for the universe than if it wasn't formed. Given that environment, that's the key. Given the certain environment that it's in, that protein molecule is actually a more desirable state of satisfaction for those electrons and protons and neutrons and molecules and everything, right? So at the bottom of the ocean, given those conditions, the state that became more favorable for carbon dioxide and hydrogen was to begin to form organic molecules. Mm -hmm. So this is how organic molecules first came to be. And because of this tremendous proton gradient, They've calculated that the concentration of organic molecules inside of those little tiny pores in these alkaline hydrothermal vents, which are different from what most people are envisioning called black smokers, which are these crazy, wild, strong vents, they eliminated that from the possibilities of where life could have occurred because they only last about 100 years, those vents on mm -hmm. average. They're very chaotic and volatile and they explode. But these alkaline hydrothermal vents, which are distinct, are seemingly peaceful and, and they last for long, long periods of time. So like the scale that would have allowed this stuff to occur, which could have, you know, they, I asked him in person, he said, we really have no idea. Anything I would tell you would be a complete guess. It could have been, you know, a couple hundred thousand years, a couple thousand years, but also could have been millions of years. So mm -hmm. it's like, there's really still not certainty, but they're at least trying to elucidate the mechanisms by which it 
could have occurred. And this, his team, you know, this is why he's at this university. It's because they're doing the work that is amazing. So basically, to, to kind of move forward with this, because this is very important for people to understand. And you might be saying, oh, I don't want to know this science. You don't have to. We'll keep, we'll keep slinging along. You can skip ahead if, you're in, if you want. But for people to understand how life really works, okay, these molecules started organizing themselves and structuring themselves in certain ways that were more favorable. Mm -hmm. Basically, eventually creating membranes, eventually leading to liquid-tight membranes, uh, certain things occurred that made it more favorable for there to be no sodium inside of the cells, which led to why, even though we come from a saline sodium loaded ocean, we ended up not having sodium in our cells. We don't use salt water, right? So basically, these cells would take certain molecules that were present and had a, they wanted to react, they would input energy that was present from this proton gradient, for example, and cause these molecules to react. And when these molecules react that wouldn't otherwise react, they release energy. So here's a way to think about it, for example, that isn't the best analogy, but say you have a little girl who wants to go down the slide, and when she goes down the slide, she's super happy, right? But in order to go down the slide and have that super awesome happiness, she has to get up the stairs first. But let's say, I mean, let's say the girl broke her ankle, so she can't get up the stairs. So you have to carry the girl up the stairs to get her to that spot where she will then be able to go down the slide. But then once she goes down the slide, there's going to be more energy released than there was otherwise. It's not the best analogy, but it kind of serves the point that you just got to input a little energy and then you're going to get a much bigger return, right? Mm -hmm. That's what life does with these molecules. And in keeping in mind that energy comes from that primordial proton gradient in those vents. So that was the spark. So think about a wildfire. All it takes is one spark a single spark, and then that spark, that little input of energy can cause the reaction between certain molecules. So in a combustion reaction, basically, you're taking hydrogen and oxygen, and they're being uh, reacted together. Because if you don't have oxygen, everyone knows if you cover something up, there's no oxygen to, to react with those hydrogens in whatever organic material you're burning. Um, you can't have a fire, right? Mm -hmm. But all it takes is that one spark. So for life, the spark was that proton gradient at the beginning of the ocean. And then it began that reaction in these primordial organisms that look very similar to bacteria today called methanogens that use methane to, or they, they use hydrogen and carbon dioxide to, and they create methane to make energy, like, like is theorized. And the most interesting thing is that Nick Lane and his team on a benchtop reactor in their lab have been able to actually catalyze using these principles and what it might have looked like in these vents, although they don't have the power to create these exact circumstances or similar circumstances even, they're fairly similar. But they've been able to catalyze the reaction of carbon dioxide and hydrogen to create these organic molecules, which has never really been done before. Mm -hmm. um, they're not quite creating life, but they're creating organic molecules, which is a huge start. And it gives a lot of credence to their theories. In addition to lots of other stuff. Again, the book's called The Vital Question, Why Is Life the Way It Is by Nick Lane. If you're in the UK, it's a different, it's, it's vital question, uh, something, energy and the origins of life. We'll, but, link, we'll link to it in the show notes, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so basically um, what life did as it moved out of the vents, mm -hmm. life, like I said, it would use molecules that, that wanted to react but had a barrier to their reaction mm -hmm. and it would cause them to react by inputting that little spark, the initial spark, and then basically utilize the energy that was released by these living organisms, right? Mm -hmm. And so as time went on, there were bacteria that could use so many different kinds of electron donors and acceptors, um, which is super fascinating. And eventually, this is where we get to the thing of the mitochondria, 
one like this mitochondria, this bacteria was super efficient at making energy and it used many, a few different things, but the main one was hydrogen and oxygen. Mm -hmm. And so, but keeping in mind life, uh, you know, it used the proton gradients on its surfaces and Nick Lane and his team, they've calculated certain ratios that basically say that you need a certain amount of surface area because keeping in mind that proton gradient that I talked about, it requires a surface, a membrane, right? So if you just had a bigger and bigger bacterial cell, there wouldn't be enough extra surfaces there to generate enough proton gradients to provide the energy required for that reaction to be energetically favorable for the universe, right? Mm -hmm. That's why life never got any bigger. But when mitochondria were taken into another cell, you could literally have a cell that's much bigger, but almost the entire inside space of it is surfaces that are creating these proton gradients or generating and maintaining these proton gradients that can fuel the reactions for life, right? And so now that this occurs and these mitochondria no longer need to have a whole genome to be maintained, it's basically like if you took a person, I mean, this is a really strange analogy, but if you took a person and cut out a large function of their brain such that, I mean, this is kind of like what society is doing to individuals. <laughs> so maybe what's happening is just part of evolution. You take out the 90% of their brain so that they can only do the things that you need them to do and nothing else, right? And then you, you don't need all the energy required to maintain the 90% of their brain so you can bring on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them for the price of just one. Or really, it's like, it, it, the, the way it would work out with the mitochondria, it was something like 97%. So you could bring on like 30 more for, for humans, you know, to be your workers for the energy that would otherwise be needed to sustain one, something like that level of, it might even be a little different, but the analogy serves the purpose, right? So that's what the mitochondria became to the host, the host cell. And then now that the host cell has so much more free energy, because it basically has a bunch of slaves working for it, basically for free, the host cell had the capacity to go from what was a maximum possible genome size of 5,000 genes or something among bacteria to genomes as big as 30,000 genes or more. And that allowed for these organisms not to just be single-celled, but to coordinate between multiple cells and still remain one organism, one functional system, to eventually grow organ systems, to grow arms and legs, to begin to be able, because bacteria didn't, as far as I understand, they didn't never really ate each other. I mean, it, I don't know enough about that. Actually, it pr probably happens where bacteria engulf each other for nutrients. Mm -hmm. However, we, we would get to the point where we would actually engulf entire other organisms to take all of the materials and things that they've collected to kind of further evolve towards this greater state of satisfaction in the universe. And here's the most interesting thing. We, you know, just fast forward a lot. We get to life forms as complex as us because of these processes. And the original thing that I said, what these organisms are doing is they're going around the earth and taking molecules that aren't reacting and they're causing them to react and making the universe more satisfied. So what life is literally doing, it's actually perfectly inevitable given the circumstances of earth. Some people say life is a miracle. It's absolutely not a miracle. It is exactly what happened given the circumstances on earth. And it is, it is the most physically favorable state given the circumstances that have occurred on earth, right? So what molecules do, like even bacteria, they go around the, the surface of the earth and they basically cause molecules to react that wouldn't otherwise react and basically satisfying the universe is mm -hmm. what life does, causing that increased satisfaction. So in our mitochondria, this is really cool. Most people maybe go on with your day feeling a little happier about yourself after this because every single time you breathe in oxygen, you're causing those oxygen molecules to react with hydrogen molecules from the food that you've shoved down your mouth this morning at breakfast, right? Mm -hmm. So what our mitochondria do, they burn oxygen with hydrogen. So every single breath you take, you're satisfying oxygen molecules with hydrogen molecules and the energy that's released when the oxygen 
and the hydrogen react together is what we use to maintain the proton gradient within our mitochondria and to keep it going. And we create the proton gradient. And this is, again, I, something I didn't really get into, but these primordial cells had the ATPase. The whole point of creating that proton gradient and using it to make energy is that when you have more protons on this side of a membrane than on the other side, they want to flow back down, just like the 100 people in the one small room and one person in the big room. They want to flow back down that gradient, but the door is shut, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a special door called the revolving door, like the ATPase. So instead of letting people just flow through that one door, you put a revolving door. And when people flow through that door, it causes it to spin and it makes energy. Mm -hmm. Like let's say it was a electric, you know, generating revolving door. That's exactly what the ATPase does. So we basically take hydrogen and oxygen, make them react. You breathe the oxygen, take the hydrogen from your food, simplify it, donate it to the electron transport chain. You use that energy. It's kind of like as if you put a bunch of cookies in one room to get a bunch of people to go to the other room, you put the cookies there, they all go. And then you lock them in, and then as soon as, you know, to get back out, they have to go through the revolving door and generate energy. That is the best analogy I've ever made or I've ever heard anyone make <laughs> to describe how mitochondria work and energy generation works. Well done. So that's what we do. For people who are not science, you might have just skipped to where we are now. It still serves a point. I hope anyone listening to this heard that because that is freaking gold to understand how life works. Like mm -hmm. You breathe oxygen and hydrogen and you satisfy those molecules. Now, it's not the only way we generate energy. Obviously, we need sunlight. Like If you just live on food and oxygen, this is kind of what we're talking about today. Sunlight also plays a huge key role. And this is one thing Dr. Cruz told me to talk, talk to Dr. Lane about is the way that water and its interactions with mitochondria also supplies a ton of energy for living organisms. So I shouldn't purport that to be the only way life makes energy. Back then, it was a huge part of it. Now, we have other mechanisms in place that are also very critical. Like, for example, the way sunlight and water interact, right? Mm -hmm. It still serves the point. It's a very interesting story. Now you know what your mitochondria are doing. They're burning hydrogen and oxygen to further satisfy the universe and increase entropy. Now, here's the really cool thing. And this is where we got to Dr. Wallace, where we got to mitochondria and all this stuff. This basically, what I just told you, you know, what I told everyone about how the mitochondria then bonded and then that's what allowed life to get more complex. What that means, Boomer, is that you and me, our life is predicated on the energy coming from mitochondria, basically. Like if you, had a, if you and I were each single bacteria, we would be generating our own energy and making everything work, but we'd never be able to be more complex. But so when I look at you and I now, it's not just like Boomer and Matt. It is a super colony of two different organisms and a hundred trillion host cells with 10 times that number of mitochondria keeping us alive, working together, right? So it isn't just two things. There's a lot more than just two things mm -hmm. at play here, right? And so people think, well, oh, you know, a lot of, when I learned this, or, well, I was interested when I learned it, but some people might think, well, how's that have anything to do with me? Okay, I work, my life works great. I don't even care. But the, the reason that becomes somewhat important is because I think most people, uh, for example, Boomer, if I ask you, do you know what happens if you stop, like if, if you stop breathing oxygen, do you know why you die? Do I know exactly why I die? Yeah. I would just go with the simplification and say like you run out of air, but in reality, yeah. you're probably running out of energy in that, those mitochondria, right? Exactly. Well, so from what I just described, if you think about it, your whole being, all of the energy, or not, yeah, most of the energy that you make is based upon that hydrogen and oxygen reaction. Every, you need to breathe all the time for it to continue to work. And if you don't, then that proton gradient that you're creating no longer exists. Mm -hmm. So if you basically, if you stop putting cookies in that room to keep the people going into the room so you can lock them into that room and then force them to go back through that revolving door, people are going to stop flowing down that revolving door and you're dead. 
right? Mm-hmm. So think of the revolving door. That's the ATPase. And um, if it slows down, you have less energy. And if it stops, you're dead, right? Yeah. What, what, what happens when you stop breathing oxygen is that you stop putting that, you basically eliminate that incentive for people to go into that packed room against the proton, against the gradient. And so then that eliminates the incentive for them to go there. And then it eliminates the necessity for them to go back through that revolving door so that you can get energy. Mm-hmm. So if, if you had to develop, design that system so that there was constantly people going through that revolving door, you would make freaking, or otherwise you're dead, you'd make damn sure that there was constantly an imp- impetus or a way that things would be able to be pushed to that other side where they're going to need to flow back down and keep that door flowing. And that's basically what life does with oxygen. So, um, and it, that's one way. So you can stop breathing and, and uh, you're going to not be able to react hydrogen and oxygen to make energy to really to create the pro- recreate the proton gradient and maintain it, I should say, and then you're basically screwed. So another way you can cause the issue for yourself is basically if you decide that you are going to take something like cyanide, for example. If, if you take cyanide, what that's going to do is that's going to lock up the door that people are going through in the first place, not the revolving door, but the other door. It's going to close it off and nothing can go through. Mm-hmm. So that's another issue. So it doesn't, it doesn't remove the impetus, the stimulus for people to get there, but it eliminates the ability for people who want to get there to get there. So basically cyanide makes it so that one of the proteins on the electron transport chain in the mitochondria, and we'll put up, I'll share some pictures I have that are really good at simplifying this, mm-hmm. but basically so that those electrons from the hydrogen that were donated from the food you ate that want to flow across that electron chain, which again, like I was saying, think back to the bottom of the ocean, the vents, the proton gradient, the molecules in the middle with electrons flowing on them. It's the same thing happening in our mitochondria. It's, it's fantastic how it actually happens, but cyanide cuts it off. Okay. So, so if you, if your electron flow on your mitochondria doesn't work, you're not going to be dead in, in a year. You're going to be dead in right away. Immediately. Okay. Now this is where it gets more and more interesting. Okay. What if that process doesn't stop entirely? Well, what in the average person, what's, what's going to happen if that goes down 30%, you know, or if it goes down 50%, what's going to happen to you? You're not going to die. You aren't going to be you. You're not going to be a good you, right? You're going to get all the issues that you had earlier, right? Exactly. Well, yeah, for me, it was like a young scale. Thankfully, you know, I never had like childhood cancer or something like that, but there are people who do for the same reason. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a final issue. So getting back to Dr. Doug Wallace, essentially he has shown I was mentioning how he's, they founded this field of mitochondrial genetic research. They figured out the mitochondria are passed down from the mom. I was talking about how the blueprint, uh, you know, when you're building a house, the organism is the house. I am like the house, right? My genes are the blueprint that built up the house. Like, for example, my dad, who's a contractor, he has a blueprint for when they're going to build a house, and then they have all the workers that come. What Dr. Wallace and his team discovered is that all of the workers, the mitochondria, they all come from the mom. So the, the dad, so you and I, Boomer, if we ever have kids, we donate half of the blueprint. The woman donates the other half of the blueprint. Mm-hmm. And then the woman donates all of the workers, your wife, whoever, your girlfriend, whatever, whoever you have kids with, she will be donating all of the workers. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's very important for men to make sure they pick someone who's going to have really good mitochondria to have their children with if they want to be healthy. And for women, there's a lot of other things, like in order to ensure the, the safety and the survival of the kids and they, you know, they need a man, a man who's alive and functional who's going to be responsible, obviously. But you want a man who has good mitochondria so he doesn't end up with something like alcoholism or something like, because that's a, brain, a mitochondrial brain issue, something like you know, a lot of other issues. You, know, you don't want a, a partner who's going to die young. That's really important stuff. And Dr. Wallace and his team basically uh, figured that out. And then they, they using that. And just to 
so people know the reason why they have to come from mothers, as far as I understand it at the moment, is because if you have mitochondrial gene mixing, it eliminates uh, the benefit of, of what mitochondria basically can do. So mitochondria are, are basically these cool engines that tailor their function to the specific environment that you're in. And this is intricately related to what we're going to be talking about a little bit further on of how our environment destroys human health. Mm-hmm. Because... Um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get into that, of how the environment <laughs> changes the mitochondrial function to destroy human health. But basically, if the, if the genes are mixed between the mom and the dad, then the mitochondria can no longer be coordinating its genes to function in a certain environment. So the mitochondrial genes get to be coming just from the mom, and this is why we have two sexes. It isn't just like it just so happened that the mitochondria were picked to come from the mothers. Like, no, females, since the, the inception of eukaryotic cells, that cell that has the mitochondria inside of it, there was one uh, flavor that did not pass on the mitochondria, and there was one flavor that did. And this is why women, or this is why the flavor that does pass on the mitochondria grows the baby inside of them, because they, I mean, and that's, that's not, it's not the same in all eukaryotic mammals. Some, you know, some grow eggs, some lay eggs, so it's a little bit different, but they're the ones passing on the mitochondria no matter what. Men pass on the ge- half the genetic blueprint, one sperm. Any, any mitochondria that a sperm has, they all die. Uh, they're all immediately selected out upon uh, conception. So that's, that's kind of why that's important. Women, like you, you look at, a, people look at women and we're just, we take for granted, like, oh, there's a flavor of men and there's a flavor of women. Anytime anyone listening to this goes out from now on, I want you to look at, at women and men and see that men are the eukaryote, the, the flavor of eukaryotes that were designed to pass on half of the genetic code and women are, is our word for the flavor of eukaryotes that was designed to pass on the mitochondria, mm-hmm. the things that actually life work. And this is why a lot of people, you know, or why I think a lot of people talk about how important it is to have really strong, like, women and women kind of pass down the life force of communities and everything. It's true. I mean, there's many other things that are important about, you know, like, that isn't the only reason why it's important to have respect and equality and so on and so on. Like, a lot of people who are feminists will... I've, I've, I've been attacked by people who are like raging feminists uh, just because they're like, oh, you know, it's not all about mitochondria. I'm like, of course it's not. You know, it's not all about mitochondria. But I'm just saying, if you believe in science, you know, there's all these, these same raging liberals basically say, oh, you know, do you believe in science? Sci- is science real? And I'm like, well, uh, I'll, you know, use it against them. If you believe in science, then what science shows, the most advanced science, happens to show that the reason why there are two different sexes is because one was necessary to pass on the mitochondria and the other was passing on the other half of the genetic code to create that uh, mix to increase survivability. Mm-hmm. So now let's get to Dr. Doug Wallace. They use that finding of theirs to, to – because if it, you can't track human speciation throughout the planet. Like think about the map. Everyone knows in their head the map of humans spreading from Africa with arrows out of Central Africa or Eastern Africa – into Europe, into India and Asia, you know, into Alaska, across the land bridge, and down to the South America, through the Americas. Everyone, I think everyone can picture that map in their head, right? Mm-hmm. They are the ones who found that map and figured out all the paths. Because when you don't have that, because if you mix every time, if you, every time a male and a woman meet, uh, have sex or have a baby and they mix, all their genes are mixed. So you cannot tell what comes from where. You can't tell what came from Italy, what came from Ireland. It, it's impossible because of that mixing, basically. I mean, you could tell... Based now, the only way that, for example, I got a gene test, and so I see that I'm a certain percentage Italian genes, a certain percent Irish. The only way that they know 
those are Italian genes because the genes, you don't look at the genes in the, in the DNA and they scream, oh, I'm Italian. No, it's, it's based on how similar they are to the genes in Italy, mm-hmm. right? But based on that alone, they can't create a map of how they moved, right? But with the mitochondrial genes, yeah. because the mitochondrial haplotype started, haplotype, forget that word or just whatever, it just means a type of mitochondria, a certain kind. They call it a haplotype mm-hmm. or just a type. No, I'll say haplotype because it's the correct word. So the mitochondrial haplotype in Africa was a certain haplotype, right? And then Dr. Wallace basically says in his talks and everything, his lectures, which everyone here should watch every single one of their lectures if you want to understand how life works and how health and disease works, why we have this chronic disease epidemic, Dr. Doug Wallace on YouTube, check it out. But um, basically, uh, there's a really good video called Mitochondrial DNA and Variations in Human Origins and Disease. It's the best video, the best hour you'll ever probably learn about health in your life, besides a separate video by the guy Wunsch called Why the Sun is Necessary for Optimal Health. But I could send you these two, Boomer, via email. Okay. Basically, Dr. Wallace talks about in these talks how the, you know, for people who don't have time to watch them, the amount of change in the mitochondria like the the number of changes is they're able to say pretty directly proportional to the number of generations that have passed since the ancestor and based on that they're able to see okay there's a base haplotype in a way Mm -hmm. and then there's many changes from that haplotype so when people moved into india and into the, the you know the sherpas moved up to higher uh, lower oxygen levels at, at the tops of mountains. One of my friends just came back from trekking around literally Everest three days ago, and he said the oxygen was insane and he felt like shit. But they live there at this above 10,000 feet, you know, above 3,000, 4,000 meters. He was there for 18 days. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, crap, these because mitoc- he doesn't have enough oxygen for his mitochondria. The Sherpas, their mitochondria mutated because keep in mind, we have 10 times or 100, no, we have 1,000 mitochondria times 100 trillion cells in our body. Mm -hmm. That means that evolution can happen through mitochondrial variations like at least a thousand times faster than through normal gene mutations. Mm -hmm. But actually it happens even faster because the mitochondria are designed to mutate their DNA naturally in order to find a solution to these certain changes in the environment. And secret surprise is that that's why these, all of these diseases are occurring today, like Alzheimer's, heart disease, uh, as far as I understand it now, it's because the mitochondria are mutating their genes and so on to try to find solutions for these energy deficient and altered environments. And in the meantime, the solutions are what we call diseases, but they're actually attempts, natural attempts by the mitochondria to find a, a thing that works given that crappy environment. In fact, it's been shown that obesity, people who are overweight actually can live longer sometimes because it, it's somehow a protective mechanism. And you could research that yourself if you're fascinated. So the mitochondrial haplotype changed as it went to Europe, as it went to North America and South America and to India, to high elevation, to low elevation, to, you know what I mean? You get mm-hmm. the idea, right? Yeah. For example, even whales, they have different mitochondrial haplotypes, although we don't study them necessarily, but they have, you know, they could go underwater for freaking ever and not need oxygen for like minutes or like hours. They're not for like an hour, some, some of these animals that are still mammals. Mm-hmm. So, so these mitochondria spread all across the earth and, and that's how they mapped this migration map. And this comes from Dr. Wallace and his, his team. So they've done that. They found it comes from the mother. They mapped human evolution or human migration patterns based on this definitive evidence. And so the really, really interesting thing that they've gotten into now in the last few years, like since I've talked with him and before that they were getting into it, they have found 
that when these mitochondrial genes, because the mitochondria, like I said, we cut out the majority of its genes, like, like cutting out the analogy of the person's brain, most of the genes were cut out, but just those necessary for energy production were maintained. And so those are critical for energy production to occur, right? And you know, mitochondria are turning over by probably the billions every second in our body, or at least by the millions. However, overall, the mutation rate in the mitochondrial genes should stay at a pretty low level, especially when you're young. It's, it's at the lowest that it'll be. Mm-hmm. This, this mutation rate is what's called percent heteroplasmy. Basically, it's just a fancy word for the percent of the mutation rate of the mitochondria, right? So percent heteroplasmy, mm-hmm. okay? And so the, the heteroplasmy in the mitochondrial DNA increases as we age, like 10%. But now, this is interesting. Dr. Wallace has elucidated all the things in addition to Nick Lane, the, the evolution dude from uh, UCL, University College London, they've kind of put together these pieces, right? And, and you can see the links there. And then Dr. Cruz, who's a, a doctor who is not constrained by needing to get grant money for his research and everything. He, he's a blogger and all this stuff because he, he, he can put stuff together on his blog because I asked him why he, you know, he isn't, isn't interested in writing research papers because the amount of bureaucracy, the amount of time wasted, he would not be able to help his freedom of speech right exactly you don't have freedom of speech a lot of the time in these communities and i even asked nick lane and he told me that's how it is like scientists need to write papers to get grant money to keep in business and you know and that's how it works and it's true every scientist knows it's true anyone who's who would deny it is is lying um and dr wallace and you know told me the same thing it's just how it's how it works right so so anyone who, who discounts someone's opinion or work based on the fact that they're not a PhD research researcher is ignorant. If you do that, if you think that, that someone's work can only mean something, if they work for a university, their PhD, like you don't even need to listen any further because uh, there's no, amen, man. Able to, yeah. Like, you know, I mean, it's just, you go and figure out how to, you're going to optimize your life from the PhD research papers and you might be successful, but like there's 30 years of, you know, just how the, the current medical, like PhD research universities on, is often on average, like 30 years ahead of textbooks, mm-hmm. the stuff that's being done by, for, for example, guys like Dr. Cruz linking together those things. Cause he's also, he's a freaking neurosurgeon. Like anyone who thinks a neurosurgeon can be an idiot. I mean, I'm sure there are some stupid neurosurgeons, but a guy like this, who's helped hundreds of thousands of people restore their health, myself included, is just some, some buffoon or some idiot because they don't have a, a PhD or they don't have research papers published on these issues. That's just purely ignorance. And it's, it's, you know, the, the, you, you can't be convinced. So don't even you know, bother listening to the rest of the show because I don't even want to try to. <laughs> we were interested, right? So, so basically, because this is like gold, you know, we have gold. We are wielding gold. Mm-hmm. So it's like we're offering the gold in our hands. And if people want the gold, like you could get it, but you know, you don't have to take it. So anyway, Dr. Wallace, they've shown that as heteroplasmy percentages increase, in, especially if it's like, well, in the case where it's more than what is the natural progression, mm-hmm. basically. Th- that's going to manifest as a disease. And one thing, for example, to share would be that if your heter- once your heteroplasmy re- reaches a certain percent, I don't exactly know what the percentage is, mm-hmm. but this is why we die. This is why we can't live forever because no matter how much, how good your sleep and repair is, how good you're living on an average lifestyle, you're someone who lives in the Mediterranean, you're in the sun eating fish from the day you're born and you live till you know, you're 110 even then, we can't live forever because these mitochondria, like our genes do fine. I mean, yeah, our telomeres on the end of our genes, they shorten too. Okay, we run out of stem cells. But really, the difference between when you're dead and you're living isn't like, you don't like, your telomeres don't all run out and then you just drop dead. 
your stem cells don't all run out and then you just drop dead. That's not what happens. You are not dead until the proton gradient that we talked about from the bottom of the ocean that was maintained by these, these vents, then these proto cells that first formed, and then these actual hard cells that began to evolve and move around. Now our mitochondria inside of our cells that maintain that gradient, as long as the gradient is maintained, you are still living. So like, for example, the other day, I mean, it, it's kind of a funny analogy, but I went and ran a mile because I used to run the mile when I was in eighth grade, five years ago for uh, school. Mm-hmm. And I loved, I loved running. I felt great because I, I was always outside. But when I started getting into the health stuff a year later, I, I stopped running because it was a real hard stress on my body that I couldn't really handle. But nonetheless, I still loved it. And the mile race is such an exhilarating run, right? So I went out to the track again, just feeling totally like, you know, wanting to see how I could do. My, my time, my set, the mile is like the 1600 for anyone in yeah. Europe who doesn't know but anyway, I, um, it's, this, it's really 1,600 meters. That's what four laps around a track. And so I went out, I ran that, and I, my, my record before was like five minutes and 21 seconds in eighth grade. Damn. And then I just ran out like with no exercise or no training, pardon me. Like, you know, I ran like a 5.33. So at least I was a little slower than myself in eighth grade, but that was with three months of training versus none. Now afterwards, because I pushed myself so hard and I haven't trained and I'm living in this environment in like Philadelphia where it's not super optimal. I don't, you know, I'm spending a lot of time working on my company, whereas like I'm not in a super sunny place. So I'm working on making some changes, but basically I was not ready for that run. And afterwards I was like, so like, felt like crap. Mm -hmm. I even threw up. I mean, I felt good later in the day, but I felt like crap at first, but I threw up. And I thought I was going to like pass out or something. Honestly, it was like, I wasn't sure why I pushed myself beyond hard. Like it was just foolish, but it shows me that I need to definitely work out more rather than sitting on my computer, working on my business. But the key thing I kept telling myself, as long as I keep inhaling oxygen through my nose and my mouth, as long as I keep oxygen flowing, you cannot die. That's basically, I mean, okay. Yeah. If you get, if you get shot, you know, by a gun in some critical system of your body, yeah, eventually that will lead to you'll lose enough blood. Interestingly enough, when you lose that much blood, the reason you die is because you can't get enough oxygen to your mitochondria still. And that's, that's what death really is. So I just bring that up because that's how important it is. That's what keeps us animated. Mm -hmm. So that's why we die because our mitochondria can no longer maintain that whole process. Right. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to uh, Dr. Wallace and you know, some of his videos people can watch. He distinctly details how, for example, if your heteroplasmy gets past a certain percent in, your, in the brain, you know, you, or in certain tissues, it could be diabetes, but then certain percent, and then one could have Alzheimer's, and they've shown this stuff. And even now, he's obsessed with autism. And it's funny, my, the reason I met him and connected with him was because my mom uh, has a friend who actually works with him. And I was talking about Dr. Cruz one night with this friend over like some wine and uh, about Dr. Wallace, how I heard about his work. And then this friend's like, oh yeah, I work with him. I was like, are you kidding me? That's insane um so i went and met with him and now this guy is telling me he's like it's interesting that ever since two years ago when you first went and met with dr wallace referring to me he's been so interested in autism and i specifically told him all this stuff that dr cruz was talking about how he's dr cruz sees that this has huge implications for autism for all these other things so my mom's friend was like it could be just a coincidence but the time scale would work out pretty well that like the stuff that you were talking about with him maybe spurred him into that. That's very cool. Very cool. Matt, I want to take um take a moment here. First off, all of this stuff is super fascinating. And yes. thank you for going through it in detail. Now, a lot of people listening right now live in altered environments, right? And you've mentioned some of the issues that you're going through yourself being in Philadelphia. But go to an office every day, 
that has air conditioners or heaters, etc., has artificial lighting, not really getting out in the sun. What are some of the ways that a person can deal with this? Because and still, you know, not completely disrupt mitochondria. What are some of the? I don't want to say hacks because I think that word's a little bit overused. But yeah, yeah, I don't. But what are some of the lifestyle alterations that we can we can make other than quitting our job? Yeah, absolutely. Well. Um, I'll just preface this with, like I, I was um, kind of just mentioning, is that Dr. Cruz, um, he doesn't have all those PhD things, whatever, but I, the reason I, I harped on that for a minute is because the logic, the evidence is there. And so some of the recommendations I'll make, a lot of people will ask me, oh, which, what I'm about to say, people will say, oh, you know, is, is Dr. Wallace telling you to do that stuff? Is that stuff that's been researched a lot? And like the answer is yes, the benefits of sunlight have been researched. How they all link together, only a few people are really putting those details together. But, but so you won't hear Dr. Wallace when you go listen to those videos t- talking about all this stuff about sunlight and blue light of how to fix your mitochondria. That's the next level. And that's stuff that people who are able to go even beyond his scope of focus, because he has a very, very still narrow scope of focus on what he's researching, and it's awesome. But you know, like he like he told me and Nick Lane told me, they can't really go too far out of their scope of focus. They, they want they have to, to get the grant money, money, right? Exactly. So, um, what people can do are the things that I was saying, um, and I'll explain as best I can from my knowledge about how these things really relate to health. But getting that morning sunrise, um, and and that's fixing the circadian rhythm, starting the body's clock, getting the critical frequencies for a lot of hormonal function in the body, which has a huge amount of downstream effects getting sunlight throughout the day, getting a lot of UV radiation on the eyes. UVA is always present. That's why I'm sitting on my porch right now. Even though it's cloudy, there's still UVA present, even if it's a little amount. UVB, which is what makes vitamin D, is only present in the summer. So in the summer, you want to be sunbathing many hours per day. You know, you want to build up, obviously, and be smart about it. But I think it's really good to, to get a good amount of sun per day. I mean, I'd say at least an hour per day, but I usually get way more, like three, four, or five hours per day depending on where I am, um, where there's more sun or less sun. If I'm in the tropics, I'll get less, obviously. But, um, you know, I won't, I mean, I won't stay in the sun as long, even if I do get more overall exposure. So, yeah, you got to build up a lot of vitamin D in the summer so that you can store it in your fat throughout the winter. Because winter. a lot of people say, how am I supposed to get vitamin D in the winter? You're supposed to store it in the summer and then keep it throughout the winter. And there's books like uh, about sun on this. For example, a book called The Healing Sun, a book called um, – light medicine of the future mm-hmm. there's a book called health and light yeah health and light the was the one i was thinking of yeah uh the one that i really liked the most was the healing sun mm-hmm. health and light's also very instructive but the healing sun is just so cool because it really wakes people back up to how important it has been known that the sun is all this time and that you know the concept that the sun causes uv radiation isn't not only that well founded by research but even if it even if it is true the amount of diseases that are linked to a lack of sunlight like the deaths of diseases linked to a lack of sunlight exposure are 50 times or more greater than the amount of deaths of skin cancer. Literally, like the heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, high blood pressure, all these diseases are linked to a lack of sunlight. And, and then the number of people they kill are at least 50 times bigger than the number of people killed by skin cancer. So it's clear to anyone who has a logical thinking brain that, they, that can rational, rationally analyze this, I think, you know, you have to make your own decisions. I can't say what's true or what's not. But what I've reasoned to be true and found to be true in my experience is that it just doesn't make sense to avoid something that's so important for health because of one thing that isn't even that well shown by the evidence. I mean, sure, you have any doctor, dermatologist, PhD, usually that you'll talk to will tell you 
that it's certainly proven. There's no debate to be had. Anytime anyone tells you there's no debate to be had on a subject, there's a debate to be had. <laughs> there is absolutely a debate to be had. And there, it's, it's a logical fallacy when, especially in science, which is supposed to be about constantly refining something, you know, to, to, to learn more constantly questioning. That's what science is. So when someone who's like a liberalist, a leftist, you know, or, or so anyone like that will come up to you and say, don't you agree with science? Don't you believe in science? Isn't science real? Like there's posters of all these really liberal people around here. They have in their front lawns that say, you know, we believe in science. Like, you know, we believe that science is real. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Do you know anything about science? Like, it's obviously real. You know, there's no question that science is something that's real. No one's, no one's arguing about that, right? But they, they, people in these communities, these really liberal communities, they frame things. They have framing errors where they frame things in such a way that, like, if you don't agree with them, you must be an asshole who doesn't care about anyone, who wants people to suffer uh, at the expense of, you know, and wants the rich people to be richer and richer. Like that's how things are framed. So anytime anyone does that, they frame you to be in a position where you're going to sound like the bad guy. The best thing I've, I've learned from this guy I did the podcast with school sucks. He helped me realize the best thing you could do is either leave yeah. or ask them questions and just let them talk until they realize how absurd they sound. Cause these people will just talk and talk and talk and talk and maybe not have much logic, you know? And, and it's not like, you know, you asked me to come on the podcast to talk and share my advice or my, my experiences, it's like they'll talk and you, you don't want them to talk. You don't want to listen. Mm -hmm. They'll just talk anyway to try to force their beliefs onto you, you know? Like if, if someone doesn't want to listen to this podcast, you can turn it off, you know? That's, that's it. This is the kind of people who try to push their views onto you because they're, they're lacking confidence in their own views. So they're going to try to push that onto you to try to feel more justified or whatever. But anyway, back to your questions about, you know, how can we do this stuff, you know? So, so yeah, the morning sunlight's critical, right? And, and I, don't, I, I just gave enough a, a background there for people who are, who are scared of the effects of sunlight and effects of UV and stuff. The evidence is not, it is, does not stand up to the trial of, of real evidence, mm -hmm. right? But it doesn't matter. So, so I think it's really healthy and safe to get a good amount of sunlight exposure throughout the summer and throughout the winter. Like my friend just came back from the Caribbean for three months on or two months on a boat and I'm tanner than him. And so like, I'm getting a lot of sun. I'm out every day when it's sunny. Um, so that's huge. Like really, if you look at yourself and you think I'm pale, I don't get out in the sun much. Like you are not going to be a healthy person. Like no matter how you cut it, you can't be, you know, you might be, you might consider yourself to be healthy. You might think you've done healthy things all your life. Like you've eaten whole grain or whatever was purported to be the healthy thing, but true health from what I've learned comes from the sun mm -hmm. largely so that's huge um i don't want to sound like a sun worshiper learn about dr alexander warch he's a fan a huge proponent of healthy safe sun exposure he doesn't recommend burning no one advocates burning that's very bad you know that's not something to well i shouldn't say it's very bad because i honestly don't know again enough of the details of you know because what i've learned is that is that the theory that burning causing DNA mutations leading to cancer is not the whole picture. And that that's why the, the idea that, that UV causing skin cancer is flawed. So I haven't quite learned all the details of what is the exact mechanism by which skin cancer is occurring. But from what I've read, there's a ton more evidence that it's more likely due to artificial lighting and electromagnetic radiation, which is being like radio, radio frequency just being pulsed in everyone's skin now. And um, things like that. You know, my mom got a melanoma on her lip. Mm -hmm. She's always worn like UV protecting lip gloss, you know. So why would she be getting skin cancer if she had UV protecting lip gloss on all the time? Hmm. You know, so if, if for someone who really digs a little deeper, it actually starts to be clear that the case is that these cancers are more associated with a lack of sunlight than too, than, than too much mm -hmm. sunlight. So 
morning sun, sunlight throughout the day, charging up. I mean, again, you said if someone works in an office, what are they supposed to do? All right. If you really want, if you're, if you're sick and you really want a lot of sun, you want to get better, you're gonna have to either quit your job or figure out, read the book called the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss and learn about how you can outsource your either outsource your work to someone else or convince your boss, set up a deal, get a little more status and a little more trust. That you could do all your work from home and then you can travel and go anywhere you want as soon as you're free to not have to work from the office. Mm -hmm. So that's a great option too, right? Let's see other options that people could do. Get sun breaks. If you're healthy and you like where you are and you can't move because of your kids, uh, Dr. Cruz in his podcast always gives this advice because it's fantastic advice. If you're in Europe, fly south to the Canary Islands for a few weeks, you know, out of each winter. Yeah. Like, you know, four to seven days, three times per winter or something. That's a huge benefit over what you'd otherwise be getting. What else can people do? Uh, you know, if you're, in, again, an artificially lit office, like, get rid of the shame for taking your shirt off. For women, it's even harder because, you know, it's just unacceptable a lot of the time or women are too, you know, conscious to take their shirt off in public and, you know, they might be harassed or whatever. Get it. I get it. So, so you know, get, get a, having a place at home where you can go out in the garden and get some sunlight. Awesome. I have a friend from the Netherlands who I don't know if you've ever talked with him or met him, but if you're in Amsterdam, he's there too. His name's Bart Wolbers. Awesome dude. Mm -hmm. He's a health blogger now with a site called Nature Builds Health. And he actually told me an interesting hack for winter. Get an aluminum blanket, like the ones that they wrap around runners when they're done running. It's like a mylar blanket with an aluminum foil on one side of it, basically. And you sit on that in your yard and it reflects. And you can, I, what I do is I turn over one of the corners. So the corner is touching the ground. So the aluminum still grounding technically, mm -hmm. but that'll significantly increase the amount of sun and i was using it for a little while while it was still like any day there was sun boomer i was literally using that blanket and then it got to a point because now it's the beginning of spring and i'm down at the, the 39th latitude in philadelphia whereas over there you're up at like the 50th yeah, latitude I'm still a little high yeah you're quite a bit i mean anyone in europe is europe's just higher set than north america but in, on the east coast of the u.s we still have a lot of clouds just because we're lower doesn't mean we have more sun you know because it's just different weather patterns. We have a lot more clouds still. But now that the, if there's a day where it isn't cloudy, dude, the sun is now strong because we've passed the first day of spring. So the sun is now half as strong as it will be by the first day of summer, which is its strongest as opposed to the weakest, which was the first day of winter. Mm -hmm. So yeah, now I can't even use that blanket anymore because it, it's just on a sunny day. It's just too much for me to use. Um, and I actually, I actually overused it one day. I was sitting on it all Whoa. day with the reflection and the sun and I had a horrible, like a uh, just headache. So it's, it's some, you know, mistakes we make with biohacking a little too much <laughs> light. It just uh, made my eyes tired. But anyway, that's something people can do. If you only have an hour for a sun break, I, I do recommend that. But, you know, again, I'll just disclaim this. I'm not a professional medical doctor. Nothing that I say is a substitute for professional medical advice. This is not medical advice. This is purely we're sharing. We're sharing information. I make this disclosure yeah. all the time. Perfect. Yeah, this is not medical advice, and I do not recommend that you try any of these things without first consulting your medical mm -hmm. doctor or whatever. Or you do what you want. But I'm not advising any of it. Just make that disclaimer for my my back. Understand? Because uh, I mean, I mean, I'm 18. The last thing I want is someone to like, you know, who's crazy and and doesn't have anything better to do with their time than to to be like a you know a liberal person who's just going to go out and chase someone down because they they disagree with their views, like the PC police, like the thought police from George Orwell's 1984. So that's another thing. The morning sun, like I said, all in the beginning, it goes back to these four things. Morning sun, getting the sun during the day, drinking good water. You can do that anywhere. You can, you can import Icelandic glacial water. That's like the best thing. You get that from a grocery store. Good spring water, uh, trying to make sure the spring, you know, is clean. If you have any way to get that tested or to, you know, there's lots of research people can do on water and on that stuff. 
Um, that's huge. And then blue blockers at night. Well, you could buy our blue blockers if you want because they're the most attractive ones on earth. From what I've <laughs> Matt, do you mind just going into the company? Because uh, I have raw optics blue blockers and I just want you to talk a little bit about the blue blue light blockers available and sort of some of the custom tinting services that you have. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, just so people know what this company is all about, I started it with a request from a friend uh, to tint to get a pair of his sunglasses turned into blue blockers. And I was trying to go through this whole process of having him send it to a company that could do the tinting that uh, is like the lab that makes the, the tint and makes all this stuff. But yeah, he had to figure out all this stuff, figure out how to get the lenses, the proper type of lenses, how to get the lenses popped in and out himself. Many different emails, many different trips, lots of time that most people don't have with us. Here's how you do it. I'll say it twice. You send us a frame, we get the lenses for your frame without or with your prescription, and we tint the lenses and put them in the frame, and we send it back to you, and that's it. You just send us a frame. Your frame can have lenses or it cannot have lenses. Doesn't matter. We are gonna take the lenses out no matter what you do, and we're gonna get tintable lenses because not all lenses can be tinted because they, again, people ask me this like every single day, we can't tint your lenses if you already have them with your prescription. We cannot tint them because they are always put anti-reflective or anti-scratch coatings on them that will not tint properly. So if you want them, if, if you want it done right or you want it done at all, just send us the frame. If it has the lenses in it, fine. But just on the website, you're gonna go to raoptics.io, raoptics.io mm -hmm. forward slash tinting for our custom tinting service, which is what you could send us the frame for. And basically that's what we'll be doing soon will be rawoptics.com, but that will be, you know, a little while down the road. Uh, we've got some big stuff coming, so I'm just going to leave that on the side for now. But, you know, we'll be doing a lot of big things. Like, this is just the beginning of the company, very much the beginning. I'm very excited by it. Like, uh, at the beginning of this talk, I was lacking enthusiasm just because I was, you know, it's a cloudy day, but now I'm really into it. I started the company in that way, and then people were asking us, can you just offer some frame styles so we don't have to pick our own frame, we just pick from you. And that's the biggest aspect now of the business, because it's just easier. When you, you go on, you see seven or eight styles that are, are the attractive styles of the day, you know, one for everyone, something for everyone, and you pick one you like and you get it. And now here's one thing is that our glasses don't block all the light around the size necessarily, mm -hmm. but the only glasses that do do that are these really unattractive safety goggles, which is what we're trying to move away from. Now, the reason I'm okay with that is because, for example, like Dr. Cruz, who's kind of the leading expert in this field, like share, he brought blue blockers to the mainstream, basically. You know, it was because of him that Dave Asprey started his blue blocking company. Mm -hmm. Dave Asprey and these guys were never talking about light. They were all about diet and supplements before Cruz came along. They were never talking about EMF and stuff. Um, for anyone who's heard them talk about that stuff, it comes from this, this neurosurgeon, Dr. Cruz. But, um, you know, and from the people he learned from, obviously, years ago. So we don't have that full wraparound yet. However, some, well, we have one style, like the one I have right here. It is actually more of a, it provides a much larger wrap mm -hmm. than, than some other styles. But it all depends. But anyway, Dr. Cruz, he doesn't even have a full wrap on his styles. Because the key is that, you know, you're going to be wearing these if you're going out or you're doing stuff. But the ideal situation is that in your home where you're, where you're living, you know, if you believe this stuff is an issue, you're going to want to change your lighting. So when you're at home, you know, you should have me, if you have a TV, you watch, you want you would want to get the filter on your TV or at least turn the brightness way down and wear your blue blockers while watching TV. You know, you don't want to be putting yourself in a Walmart because the only places you're going to have really bad leaking of light will be like in a really brightly lit place where there's lighting like a Walmart or a target. Part of this concept is like, even if you have blue blocking glasses, 
you don't want to be going to those kinds of places at night if you can avoid it. It's if you can't, then it's still better to have something than nothing. And one of the things we're going to be working on, um, you know, as time goes along, we'll have more wraparound styles that are more attractive than the Dave Asprey True Darks and the other Amazon safety goggles that exist that you wouldn't want to have in public. But for now, we have this one on our website. It's, it's called Thutmose. It's named after an Egyptian king who extended the Egyptian kingdom to its largest extent of history. That's kind of relates like to the full rap, you know, covering as much as we can. Mm-hmm. That's like these names come from uh, certain things. But anyway, so that's how raw optics kind of grew. Um, the name raw isn't like raw. Raw is like when something's uncooked, obviously, you know, raw is the sun god. The Egyptian so, sun god, right? Precisely. So raw, it's all about, um, you know, I was thinking, I love the name raw. I love the word. It's a very powerful phrase for people who don't know. There's some evidence, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is, this is a correct, but people can cross-check if they want. Amun-Ra was this very powerful god in Egypt that was basically made by one of these kings by the combination of the god Ra of the sun and Amun, who was some other chief god. Amun-Ra became like the main god. And apparently, when people say Amen after they pray, you know, Amen, or in every language, in Serbian, where I was on my exchange program, they say Amin. Apparently, that all stems from this god Amun, because it was the way they gave tribute to, to this god. Mm-hmm. So just an interesting side note. But so Ra also is a very powerful phrase, right? Refers to the god, something that, that was worshipped by one of the first human civilizations ever. Um, and then that's all about the sun, natural lighting, connecting back to the natural way of things. And optics is just lighting, mm-hmm. right? It's all about types of light glasses it could be lights it could be all kinds of different stuff that you know will be coming in the future with us most likely but um yeah so raw optics is that's where the name is from we also like i said we have the tinting service and then we have our frame styles this is one of them Mm -hmm. these are going to be just uh changing over time and things but right now we got a solid lineup and you can order these ones with a prescription or without a prescription. Most people just get them for the health purposes, so they get no prescription. But if you'd like, we can get the prescription lenses. Now, if you order from us, um, it depends where you are. If you're international, we have a few shipping options. We have first-class mail, then we have priority mail, and then we have priority mail express. For anyone international, priority mail is going to be like $35, and express will be like $60-something. First-class mail is going to be like 15 but it is going to be probably two to two to four weeks if you select that uh, for shipping. It could be a little earlier in some cases, but so you might want to just spend the $35 and get priority mail so you get it guaranteed in six to ten business days. And then, you know, if you order it, yeah, we'll have it packed and shipped like within two business days, uh, if, not, if not the same day or the, or the next day depending on your time of order. But then um, if it's prescription, we're going to have to, you know, we, we work with a lab that's going to get the prescription lenses. So we're going to have to uh, get the lenses from them. And it takes time to do prescription orders. Like you, you go to the, the guy down the street and get a prescription. It's not like Amazon Prime where you get it the next day. Yeah. We can't just have every prescription ever because there's infinite different prescriptions. So that takes about, I want to say five to 10 business days for those to be processed and shipped. And then whatever the shipping speed is, but still it's, it's very good. And the cool thing is that this service was never offered to anyone like the service, especially the tending service. Still, no one else is offering it. I'm pretty surprised. Shouldn't be saying this because someone's going to try <laughs> to. Somebody's going to gonna rip it, right? They, they couldn't beat us. If someone tried to beat us, they couldn't because there's a brand, there's a story, there's love, there's passion behind raw optics. When you support our company, you're supporting a really powerful mission to spread these ideas. You're supporting me. So people donate their money to charities that are totally disconnected. The money's wasted 
on, you know, big salaries for corporate CEOs. Like as the guy running the company, I'm not even taking any salary or any money from my pocket. Like literally everything is going to the company to build up this idea, share blue blockers, share these messages. Sure. Yeah. I'll take benefits from it. You know, if I want to travel or have money, yeah. Once it's big enough, I'm not going to just work for free, obviously. And I don't, I would never, you know, I deserve to make some money for what I'm doing. But the point is that like, if you want to support a mission that's tangible, you can see what you're doing and who you're supporting. Not only are you just, it's not like you're donating money. You're actually getting the best product that exists in the market. It's up to the top specifications of Dr. Cruz, you know, blocking all blue light and the green light frequencies that are shown to suppress or have any effect on sleep at all. Um, not too dark that you can't see, like you could still drive with them, although you have to be careful and do that on your own terms. Do not recommend that at home. You know what I mean? Like I recommend that you just have to experiment and see what works for yourself. Some people like older people, apparently the eyelets in 40% less light as we age at a certain point. So the people like that, you're going to want to maybe get a lighter tint, which we will also be offering in a near time in the near future. You could people um, who, who hear this and they want to request that you could request a 500 nanometer tint that too will take a few extra days of processing because we don't do that regularly. But uh, we could do a lighter tint than what I have here, which is the 550 tint, mm -hmm. which is more right now it's like an orange looking but in the night when there's mostly fake lights around it appears to be more of a red depending if there's leds they have more red so they're going to cause these glasses to appear more red if you're in the sunlight they're going to appear more of an orange color but um we still call the tint nocturnal red because at night if you're in an led it appears a more red color so um we have a daytime yellow tint that's something i don't even have much written about on our website it's just for people who know about it really but um that's something that people use during the daytime and basically that's going to block blue light frequencies that are going to damage your eyesight during the day. So for, for any of your people, like you're saying, who work in an office, you want an applicable, tangible application. Well, you could, I recommend you get a pair of nighttime blue blockers to start because that's going to have the highest, highest leverage for your melatonin level. Here's how it all comes full circle. All that mitochondrial stuff we talked about in what might have been the first half of this, you might end up cutting this in half or something or in three parts, who knows? The mitochondria are repaired by melatonin. The mitochondrial DNA are repaired by melatonin. That's like the simple and the really solid way to make the link. It's, it's that simple, but that critical. Melatonin is absolutely critical. And so people who are on their phone late at night, this is why in the beginning, Boomer and I are shaking our head. Like anyone who hasn't heard about this, who claims to be interested in health or, or isn't, you know, isn't getting it, like, you know, what are you doing? Are you, are you actually considering this or are you just kind of going along with what everyone else is doing? Um, you know, you're afraid of your image. I mean, hey, that's fine. But you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yellow blue blockers would be something for people who want to take the next step. They have a pair of these for night and you could repurpose these, wear them in the office during the day. But some people are fine with that. Some people might find that they get a little tired because these are fairly powerful. Like I find I get tired. So I have a daytime pair. It doesn't block all the blue lights. So I can still get that, that signal throughout the day if I'm indoors on my computer that'll only block the frequencies that are super energetic super eyesight damaging cool you see i'm outside right now so i get the sunlight i'm not going to be wearing any glasses even though i'm looking at the computer screen i'm still getting the full spectrum mm -hmm. so that's some policies people can try so all right we'll, we'll of course link to all of this in the show notes matt now I, I have probably four more questions for you top resources for somebody who wants to learn about quantum biology and what you've just talked about. We've obviously talked about a few of the doctors and some of the books like Health and Light, etc. But what are some of the top books that you've read uh, that you recommend for people? So if you want to understand this stuff, um, like, you know, and how life really works at a foundational level, the must read, number one must read 
is uh, The Fourth Phase of Water by Gerald Pollock. Oh, fantastic. How Water Works. Yeah, it's a really good book. But life is mostly water. And what they found in their lab is that water is not the same in life and cells as it is in a glass or in the ocean even. So um, it's very, it's in a different form. It's called structured water or fourth phase water or what they refer to as easy water. Mm -hmm. And you could read about, but it's all the same thing, structured, fourth phase, easy, whatever. It's a distinct, it's like a, or liquid crystalline water would be another word. That's the same, same thing, all of them basically. So yeah, that's a great book because that's water is life and life is kind of like water, you know, and protons and all these things that we talked about, but mostly water, very important to start with. So then another book that I think is, is probably more important as far as all the, the stuff goes on a theoretical level, but as far as like the physical applications of life, it's also pretty important. It's called Going Somewhere, Truth About a Life in Science by a guy named Andrew Marino. And basically, he wrote a book. Um, he was he's an interesting guy. You know, how can I share this in a simple form? Well, he was a student of a guy named Robert O'Becker. And Robert O'Becker has another book I'll recommend. It's called The Body Electric. You could also ah, throw that there. Right over here. It's awesome. But basically, Marino was his student. And his, Marino's book is way more interesting, in my opinion, because he ended up, um, you know, Becker, for people who, who aren't familiar with this, was researching how electricity exists in living organisms in ways we never knew before, how bones regenerate using semiconduction and electric currents and all of these things that weren't known about before. And then Marino said, well, if we have all these systems in our body that are electrical in nature, very, very weak electromagnetic fields and everything that control all this stuff, maybe it's possible that these high voltage transmission lines whose power fields are literally millions of times proportionally stronger than the fields in our body, maybe those could have an effect on our biology, possibly, right? And he got into all these court cases with these power line companies, and, and he lost, uh, he was a, uh, a witness, usually scientific witness. You know, he always lost because they could hire a ton of researchers from Yale, Harvard, and everything to manipulate the court and manipulate the, the argument and, and use this flawed legal clause in the, in the United States law. It was a precedent that basically said that scientific evidence it can only be admitted into a courtroom if it's generally accepted, which would be like me and Boomer saying, because we agree that something's true, it must be true. Because, or, or because 100 people say it's true, it must be true. But it's never true unless you can actually you know, prove it based on your evidence. And, and eventually that legal, that, uh, legal precedent was changed in a case that Andrew Marino gave advice to the lawyer because he came and asked Marino, you've dealt with these people, you've dealt with this stuff, even though you, know, you weren't successful, what – we have a chance now with the pharmaceutical company and a woman who had a birth defect from a drug for morning sickness in the 90s. And they came to Marino and he basically said, you should make them, you should tell them the truth that science isn't what people say it is or scientific truth isn't what people agree it is. It's, it's a, a result of the methods that are used to obtain it. Knowledge isn't something that's true because people agree on it. It's something that's true because of the inherent truth in it that is discovered by the way that people find it, you know, by the scientific method, mm -hmm. right? And, the, and, and also that guys in court, uh, any PhD researchers or whatever from Harvard, Stanford University, you know, Yale, whatever, just because they can say what they know, it doesn't matter unless they can explain how they know it. And they never would explain how they knew it because they were always full of shit back in the court cases where Marina lost. Also, he, he explains how the Navy had on multiple separate occasions spent millions of dollars for research on radio frequency radiation and its health effects and then found results they didn't want 
hit it uh, all, classified it all, kept it in the dark. And then he didn't, he didn't get too much into the 90s and all the telecom industry stuff because his career was mostly finished by that time. But the stuff gets even more disgusting when you look at the telecom industry lobby and how big it is and how much control it is it has and how even the guy who was the head of the lobbying firm called CTIA for Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, for all of those companies, he was appointed by Obama in 2008 to be the head of the Federal Communications Commission, mm -hmm. which is supposed to regulate you know, the whole industry. Obviously, there's no regulating if he's going straight revolving door from, from regulator to main lobbyist. It's just complete insanity. But anyway, a, a Pico, speaking of this shit, Pico, electricity company, just drove by with a car with a sensor on top of it, which is picking up the data from my smart meter to know exactly how much electricity Ooh, we smart use. meters. We can get into that one for a while. Well, we don't really, we shouldn't. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. And Marino's book explains the foundational principles of this issue. So anyone who, who listens to this or shares this with someone, you know, or you're, you're debating or having a, a constructive argument with someone who claims that cell phones and non-ionizing radiation can't have an effect on biology because it's proven that's first of all, ask them to explain how they know what they know and they won't be able to. But then if they try to explain it and they say that it's because there's, if it isn't cooking your tick, because if someone actually who believes that point, they know what they're talking about, they would be able to tell you and 99% and of them won't be able to. They'll just claim that because other people, it's called the logical fallacy of, of uh, reverting to authority or something. They'll say, because these people say it's true, it must be true, which isn't true. But if you know they did know what they were talking about, which they won't, if they did, they would say, Unless it's ionizing radiation like x-rays and all this stuff that, uh, you know, directly damage your DNA and ionize molecules and knock electrons and neutrons and protons apart, then if it's not like that, then it can't harm you unless it's actually enough radio frequencies or microwave frequencies to actually cook your tissues. That's the position that the telecom industry holds mm -hmm. in order to make it so that no amount, unless you're literally being microwaved, cooked by the amount of, of, of radiation they're putting out, you can't be harmed. That's the position right now. And that's what anyone like who doesn't understand it would, should know if they at least want to act like they know something about it. But the reality of the matter is that all of the research from thousands of papers and hundreds of researchers for the last 50 years or 60 years, even more, have found that radio frequencies, like starting with radar, like the Navy research, and these guys that I mentioned, and it was all classified and hidden away, you could read it in Marino's book. It's called Going Somewhere, Truth About a Life in Science. There's so much effects shown, such as cataracts, so many effects like cataracts, cancer, all these issues, like so many issues, it's insane. And yeah, they're pretty well documented. So, and there's even petitions by a bunch of scientists to the United Nations, like 141 scientists from 39 countries, all this stuff. So just look into that. Um, you know, basically, long story short is that if you're really interested in this stuff, you should read that book. And then you should learn about um, the things that you should not have in your house. And I'm trying to think there's a, a website called Electric Sense mm -hmm. that, that'll explain the things that you should be careful of. Um, it, as far as EMFs in your house, like you want to be turning off your, your uh, breaker box at night. So, so you can at least lower your exposure. It's not going to eliminate your neighbors. But it's going to be because electromagnetic radiation, it isn't just like you step one foot away and it gets one unit weaker. It gets like exponentially weaker the further you go. So that means just turning off your, your breaker and your Wi-Fi router can exponentially reduce your exposure even if your neighbor still has mm -hmm. one because that will be so much closer to you. So you know, keeping your phone on airplane mode if it's on your body or if it has to be on all the time, keeping it in a backpack or in a purse 
or a bag instead of right on your body. Um, things like that, not ever upgrading to 5g. We could go into that uh, in a second or (laughs) may have to go to another podcast for that one. Yeah, we would have to do another podcast, but basically 5g Tom Wheeler, this guy who was supposed to be a regulator, what he used his time under Obama to do was basically to roll out 5g radiation or to make it completely allowed so that they could put antennas everywhere to give people all the shit that we don't need. And we don't even, I mean, some people want it, but no one really cares that much about it just they're doing it anyway and it's not about all these things they say it's about it's about control and the surveillance state that's what it's all about that's what 5g is really about if you hear it think control and surveillance but on the and i'll explain that rather than just claiming something and expecting people to believe it you don't have to believe anything i say don't take it for face value i want people to i'd love if people would challenge this because i want to learn more so i want to always advance my knowledge too so like they're putting tele uh antennas on top of telephone poles so like there's telephone poles across the street from me um, and they're going to be putting antennas on top of those poles. There's some around the corner from my house already. They're all over our area, like where you grew up. They're all over this whole main line, mm-hmm. Philadelphia suburbs area. They're all over. We have them in Amsterdam too. Really, they're all over the New York suburbs. They're in, they're in Philadelphia. They're going up everywhere. And what they're going to allow for is they claim like self-driving cars, movie downloads in one second. Like, we don't need that. AI. Yeah, all this stuff, everything to be connected. And it's going to be so much more radiation exposure. It's going to be insane. And uh, that'll cause issues. So staying away from people, staying away from population centers. If you're really interested in this stuff, you probably, and, and you, especially if you have a disease or you have kids you want to protect, I'd, I'd say staying away from population centers where people are all asleep. No one's conscious. No one's aware of what's happening. Staying away from that because their decisions are affecting all of us. For example, things like that are huge that people can do. So yeah, you know, that's, that's to, that's one of the books Fourth phase of water, going somewhere. The body electric is not as important, I'd say, but it's it's pretty interesting just to read because it'll give some really cool perspectives. I'd say um, the vital question by Nick Lane that I mentioned earlier is absolutely mm-hmm. critical. I would say that um, people should definitely read Health and Light by John Ott or like we mentioned, uh, The Healing Sun, I personally prefer. And then there's some other really cool books such as... Hmm. Well, Dr. Cruz's EpiPaleo prescription is interesting, but you'd be better to listen, I think, to some of his podcasts from a couple of years ago because they're really cutting to the chase to learn about Dr. Cruz and what he's all about. Um, I'm going to be working on the next few months and years, like you know, sharing and explaining a lot of these concepts in a really simplified form. Mm-hmm. But um, those are those are pretty much a, a good things to start with. I did mention a video from Dr. Alexander Wunsch because he, he hasn't written any books that I'm aware of. He just does research papers. So there's uh, those. His, his video, the best one I've ever seen, was called uh, Why the Sun is Necessary for Optimal Health. It was like a talk he gave at UCLA. It's, it's amazing. But then he has a whole Vimeo channel with videos that are all super cool, a lot in English, some in German, but mostly in English. And then Dr. Wallace, too. He hasn't written any books yet but or that I'm aware of. He just writes really cool research papers. So people can read his papers if they're interested. But like they're, they're dense in science. I haven't even gone through a lot of them. But um, the, the videos he, he describes ex- explain everything more with the essence, and you can see him talking, hear what he's about. He's an awesome guy. He's like Galileo of biology, no exaggeration at all. Like He is bringing biology to where we understand what, what cancer is, what all these things are. So Dr. Wallace's YouTube videos, specifically the one called Mitochondrial DNA Variations in Human Origins and Disease, um, yeah, and those are great things to start with. So I hope that answers the question of, of what you can really do to learn about these things. Matt, this stuff is audio gold. Thank you. Uh, three rapid fire questions to close out. Uh, and I think you, 
you touched on some of these, but just rapid fire. Number one tool or technology you use to become more superhuman? The sun. Good answer. Uh, what's your top trick for enhancing your cognition? Oxygen and morning sunlight on my eyes and really good water like I'm drinking. It's all about mitochondria. Your brain has more mitochondria than anywhere else. Like people will tell you, you could take these supplements, you could take all these little things. They're not improving the energy production in your brain, which is what your brain needs to do things and to make anything work. So you need more mitochondrial function, you need more oxygen, you need higher quality fats and foods that fit, match your season. We didn't even talk about that. We won't go into it. You need to eat foods that match the season that you're in. So like fats in the winter, it's okay to get some carbohydrates and stuff in the summer. It's not as ideal to have them in the winter though. It's not super good. And then, so yeah, the oxygen, the hydrogen's in a good form. And then good quality water and sunlight. Like you can't beat that. Your brain will work so much better. If I, everyone I talk with, they said, just since I started going out in the morning, sitting on a rock, looking towards the sun, I just feel so happy, so much better. Just like life is great, you know? Absolutely. And then last one, and you've already given a wealth of resources here, but best book you've read on peak performance. Wow. Best book I've read on peak performance. You can take that just yeah. in performance in general. Yeah, you I mean, on performance in general, just optimizing life. The thing that comes to my head is Dr. Cruz's EpiPaleo prescription, but even that is it's he didn't really dig too much into the sunlight stuff. I'd probably mm -hmm. say the book called now can I can I go to can I go to a video and not a book? You can go to a video. Okay. So yeah, I would say the, the why the sun is necessary for optimal health. Yeah, that would be really good. But now I'm thinking outside of the health world, there's some books like or a book that would be really good would be the four hour work week. Like for anyone, who of course, to, yeah. For anyone who wants to not be because this people are a lot of people say I can't move. My job is locking me to my my location and I can't I can't go anywhere. Well, I would tell them like if you read this book, you can understand how you do not, especially in the world with the internet. Like okay, if we lived 500 years ago or 100 years ago, even you might be locked by where you live. But in this world with planes, the internet, you don't have to be locked by anything. I mean, I'm 18 years old. If I could do this, then anyone could do this. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah, if you have a family and kids, that's a little more challenging to move. Make it work. If they really want to, you won't stop until it happens. Even if it takes 10 years, if you really want something and you work at it for 10 years, it will happen if you actually want it. But if you don't really know that you want it, you're not really sure, then you probably won't get it. So that's yeah. what I got. I read that book five years ago on a beach in Bali and it kind of set me on a path to, to do different things with my life. So I completely agree with that one. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure. I, I'm going to have a fun cutting this audio. I'm, I'm curious if I want to do two episodes or one, but yeah. dude, you're a wealth of information. Well, thank you. Again, like I said, audio gold. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much too, Boomer. I hope people enjoy it and everyone can go on with their day now. Happy that they're satisfying the universe. <laughs> the hydrogens and the oxygens out there with their mitochondria so yeah everyone take care of yourself and take care of your mitochondria too so see you soon. excellent all the best well thank you matt and thank you all your superhumans hey now superhumans it's boomer and once again just joining you before i say goodbye for the week how did you like the episode i'd love to hear from you go to podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com drop me a note i'd love to hear everything and anything you have to say about the show and if you really enjoy what you're hearing and you really enjoy learning from this podcast, do me a favor. Go over to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Go over to Stitcher. Go over to SoundCloud. Just let us know how we're doing because I really appreciate it and it helps get the word out on Decoding Superhuman. Have an epic day. <laughs> <laughs>